and welcome everybody to Atwood Unleashed 112. It's been a crazy week, dominating the news has been the Lucy Letby case, which we've covered somewhat, but we're going to dive deeper with Professor Tim Wilson and look at the complex background characteristics and experiences that could have possibly caused such wicked, evil, monstrous behaviour. We're going to be touching on the Maui wildfires, Biden falling asleep, weird analogies. And also there's an absolutely heartbreaking case of Andrew Malkinson. came out last month. He was released 13 years after they knew he had not committed this assault on a woman. They had the evidence showing that it wasn't him and they bloody well suppressed it and it just shows that there are bigger psychopaths in the justice system than are in the prison upon some occasions all right so we've got a three hour show tonight we were going to go over to locals but we had a hiccup with the rtmp component so we are going to do three solid hours on youtube this evening and we're going to start looking at ancient civilizations restricted history sacred sites and their interaction with consciousness we may if we have time do a bit on crop circles and that's our first guest this evening is freddie silver that's from 6 to 6 30. 6.30 to 7 is the return of Professor Tim Wilson talking about Lucy Letby as well as the Andrew Malkinson, him getting out of prison. I know Professor Tim talks about Munchausen's syndrome and I think that did play a role but there's a lot more to it than that so we're going to get into it more deeply and then oh you've got Andrew Gold yeah, beginner YouTuber and gangly British Sasquatch lookalike Andrew Gold, according to the producer notes, apparently demanded to come back on the show just to ensure that he remains relevant. Uh, but during my chat with Andrew, uh, we'll be speaking about a recent viral video that some of you may have seen of a, a Kentucky woman who was found by local police chained to the floor by her violent partner. Pretty powering stuff. Uh, and then from 7.30 to 8, I'll be speaking with former MP, author, political and royal family commentator Norman Baker. Uh, Norman will be dropping by to chat with us about whether King Charles is being pushed to his limits by Harry and Meghan's antics, uh, why the royal family didn't attend the Women's World Cup final, Michael Fawcett's cash for honours investigation, and how Meghan has been blasted as delusional for underestimating the royal family. So you're going to get your royal family fix. I know we've got a lot of royal family followers on the channel. And then from eight to nine, we've got the return of Charlie Robinson. We're going to get his thoughts on the Maui wildfires and the incompetence of the US government. I'm sure you guys, as usual, have tons of questions for Charlie. So it's going to turn into a big old Q&A at the end of the show there. Now, while we wait for our first guest to come in, I'm curious to get Stephen's thoughts on the Lucy Letby case. It's massive, isn't it? I mean, it's it's taken the entire nation 
you know, by shock completely. I mean, the extent of it is is overwhelming, and it's not just the horrible crimes she's committed. Uh, you know, justice has been served now. She'll spend the rest of her life in prison. It's the fact that it took so long to get anyone to act on this. And it, it seemed like reading in between the lines are some of the, the claims from the whistleblowers that the hospitals were quite, well, more concerned about having a big PR uh, catastrophe on their hands than they were safeguarding these children and, and getting justice for the parents. So um, it's it's a very strange one. I mean, the ingredients are, you know, awful, newly born babies. It involves a, a woman who's clearly a psychopath, which is a, a quite strange turn of events in these kind of cases. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know. If, I don't know if anything can make it right for the parents who've had to uh, endure this. Indeed, it's an absolute tragedy. And over the past 50 years, there's been 30 plus cases of medical staff doing things to patients that cause them to die. So serial killers in effect. And the female ones are the only ones who kill babies and kids. The male ones tend to kill people who are really old and are on their way out. And I asked Jen, you know, my partner about that today, um, as to why she would think that's the case. And there's, there's definitely, um, she said, to do with like perhaps women who are getting older and can't have babies or have had problems as kids themselves with things. And I think it needs a lot more research. There are, you know, all these different theories right now as to why Lucy Letby did it. And with when we get Professor Tim Wilson on, I know he's going to be talking about what's it called Munchens by Munchausen by proxy but there's also the theory of the addicted to blue button incidents you know they're bored on the night shift there's a blue button incident it creates a lot of excitement there's the theory of god complex whereby you are in a position of authority medical authority and people are coming to you all the time and you start to feel as if their lives rest in your hands. You've got the power over life and death, which they do. I mean, look at the helpless babies. These weren't even normal, healthy, robust babies, predominantly that she targeted. Some of them were just over a pound in weight. Tiny, tiny little babies that were fighting to stay alive. Uh, there's nothing more vulnerable in the world than these hapless little souls dependent upon the staff to keep them alive and it's it's um the most wicked thing in the world that she has done this to those little souls in particular so the complexity surrounding it i think that's what's caused a lot of interest in it everyone's trying to dig up her past you know was she involved in drugs dodgy relationships with men snm anything weird and they found out that she is so squeaky clean that it adds to the contrast between a perception of what that kind of person would do and what she was actually convicted of doing. But it's fascinating. Yeah, and um, I think I think if you're not a psychopath, 
you immediately start asking the why question. Why? What could possibly can you know compel somebody to do something so terrible? And I don't, you, you, I don't think you'll ever get a satisfactory answer because no answer is good enough for something like this. Um, so I, I just, I hope we do find more details. I hope there is something else that because I mean, I think one of the worst things about this. I mean, if this was a an ordinary member of the public who did something like this, that would be terrible enough in its own right. But there's a different dimension when it's somebody who's trusted to care for people, to look after people. It's their job to be trusted around the most vulnerable people on planet Earth. And when they betray that trust, that is that is a whole different dimension. And it's certainly not helped by the fact that she's persisting in maintaining her innocence uh, in the court as well. So a very, you know, deeply unwell individual by all accounts and i'm calling for criminal indictments against the management at that hospital because they enabled her behavior when she was reported repeatedly by doctors colleagues who were concerned they enabled her behavior they put her on desk duty and then they were about to bring her off desk duty and put her back giving her access to the babies again. So this just absolutely blows my mind. The evil incompetence, or perhaps they don't, you know, what's their motive? We've got to ask as well as to why they wouldn't want to call the cops right away and get this woman locked up and protect these babies. What is their motive to keep them brushing things under the carpet for so long? And we've seen this in other cases whereby they don't want the PR crisis, they don't want to pay out compensation, they don't want their careers to unwind. Several of them have, have happily retired. I think one of them's happily retired in France. One of them was suspended. But this is far from the consequences they should be facing. I'm watching on Netflix this case of Gabriel Fernandez. And in his case, which was a death penalty case, there were four members of the state some were social workers who were criminally indicted for endangering that child and they have endangered these babies by not acting when they should have when the report started coming in Ooh, looks like we've got freddie silvers come in all right we're going to bring our next guest in Stephen. so we'll see you in an hour my friend see you in an hour have a good chat Take care. Cheers. All right. We're going to go over to the esoteric. Freddie Silva researches ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and the interaction with consciousness. I love this stuff. And if we've got time, we might do some crop circle stuff as well. So please put your questions in the chat for Freddie, and we'll bring him in right now. Hey, huge thank you for coming in, my friend. How are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, good to see, well, good to hear a good uh, local voice. I'm yeah, where, where are you based? Uh, I'm over in Maine. I can't afford okay. it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, Freddie, can you introduce yourself to the viewers and tell them your expertise? My expertise, oh my God, yes. uh, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I am a um, 
student. Uh, I'm not an expert. I hope I never become an expert. Uh, I'm a student of ancient mysteries, earth mysteries, um, secrets of antiquarianism. And uh, someone's actually called me a forensic archaeologist, which is very dramatic. Uh, essentially, I look into the past and uh, look at the stories and the history that we've been told that doesn't quite add up. Uh, I've also added a Knights Templar to my uh, list of things that I'm supposed to be an expert on. And also, I am the world leading expert on crop circles, even though that's now 20 years old. Oh my goodness, the world's leading expert on crop circles. Wow. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. First off, what is the most ancient civilization you've looked at? Well, uh, I would probably say anything around the Pacific, which just sounds a bit surprising. I always said that uh, if we're looking for our remote ancestors, we need to go to the place on Earth where we have a lot of land missing. Uh, and if you travel around the Pacific, talking to the islanders and, and looking at the folklore, They'll admit that uh, these are not islands. These are the tops of the mountains where their land used to be. And that's a 12,000-year-old memory. Uh, and you pick up that story in the Andes. If you go to Lake Titicaca, the uh, world's highest navigable lake, uh, you'll find the Pukina and the Aymara, who have memories of hanging out with very tall people, about eight and a half feet tall, light-skinned, long, blue-eyed, red-haired, and green-eyed, called the gods. Uh, they called them human-like, but not quite human. And they were very comfortable with them. There was not, not a matter of worship or uh, and the fact that they were superior. They, they talk about a time when they were helping them build these incredible temples around Lake Titicaca. So that's about one of the earliest people I've ever come in contact with. And there's not many of them, but they do have great stories. And the fact is that their folklore and their travel history overlaps that of ancient Egypt, uh, which is on the other side of the world that you live. Wow. Ash has asked if you could just center yourself and come forward a little bit. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Still> you. <laughs> so, so how many years ago were the giants? So that would have been the time of the end of the Ice Age, uh, 11,000 years ago. And uh, the Earth was uh, hit by uh, what we look at every November, the Torrid Meteor Shower, which seems to be the culprit in all of these problems. And... Uh, it, these meteors hit exactly in the place where you don't want them to, which is the ocean. And that created what we call the Great Flood. So this is a time when there's a parallel civilization of people, again, human-like but not quite human is the phrase I hear all the time, that uh, appear to live mostly on islands. And it was only because the sea level rose 400 feet in the blink of an eye uh, that they were forced to move to the mainland. And that's where we pick up the stories of human hunter-gatherers suddenly discovering the accoutrements of civilization. You know, mathematics, agriculture, animal husbandry, uh, astronomy, building techniques, and so forth, because we rub shoulders with the remains of these um, uh, groups of gods, uh, for lack of a better word, and they basically taught us what they knew. And once we sort of set ourselves up on the road where we are now, they went back into the shadows. You've got tons of questions coming in. First one's from Colette. Where are the most crop circles? Oh, God. Uh, if you're talking about the real phenomenon, uh, you're a bit late because that pretty much phased out around 2003. And since then, I can put my hand on heart and say 99% of man-made. Uh, so they're still appearing mostly in England. Uh, some of the real ones, which are very, very rare, are still appearing in Saskatchewan, 
the Canadian Prairie, and also in Ohio, near Serpent Mound. Uh, but the true core of the real phenomenon really closed about 2003. Uh, it wasn't a performance, it was a piece of communication, and a very important one at that. And uh, I have to say with great pride that the book I wrote 20 years ago has just been republished, and it's still current to this very day. I wouldn't change a single word. So if you want to look at the real phenomenon, go back there. Next question. Looking at some ancient drawings, do you think beings from space visited Earth thousands of years ago? Well, they're still visiting today. Uh, ask any Aboriginal people, any uh, Native American tribe. In fact, the people who tend to be the most remote cultures on the planet, uh, who have had the most contact with them, uh, are the ones that are still saying, yes, come by uh, next month and they'll be coming around for tea. Uh, so yeah, they've been coming for a long, long time. Uh, they've been, they're still coming now. And in fact, I was just reading this story by a professor from Montana University who actually collected a lot of the stories and personal experiences of people in the Native American tribes as well as in Central America. And they're really making stand up and listen. It's a very boring book, uh, not well written, but it's the stories that are really important. And uh, these people are, they're not afraid, they're just concerned that they experience something different from themselves and you can definitely sense the, the hesitation in the stories because they don't want to be mocked or laughed at by their fellow humans and certainly not the villagers that they're with so i tend to sort of believe a lot of these things and the interactions are very spiritual uh, and very productive samantha wants to know what you know about the nephilim oh the nephilim oh uh i'm gonna have tea with them next week actually uh, <laughs> the nephilim uh, uh, basically, uh, it means the children of Orion. And it goes back to a time, again, about 12,000 years ago, when we were rubbing shoulders with this parallel civilization. And we had the people called the people of Anu, also known as the Anunnaki, or the Anunnaga, as they were in, uh, in India and Polynesia. And a lot of uh, nonsense has been written about them, a lot of negative stuff about them. So let's avoid all of that. Uh, these people were definitely in contact with the laws of nature and how to bend them. And they had another group of people who were intermediaries called the Watchers. And they're the ones who, once in a while, go down the mountains and hang out with the uh, hunter-gatherers and say, you know, if you mix these two plants together, you could make bread. And then they'd bugger off into the uh, back upstairs to the mountain and they leave us to it. So it was a very subtle thing. Now, for reasons that we don't know, there's a small, small group of watchers who decided to disobey orders, marry human women, and teach them all the things that uh, less developed cultures ought to know about. Uh, there was no level of ascendancy in terms of the learning process. And they uh, finally were able to have children with human women, and they were basically with a nephila. And uh, they were uh, not very well, how shall I say, they had a, a few tools missing in their toolbox because the mixture of DNA with humans and the nephil and the watchers created some terrible psychological problems. And these offspring, who were half human, half divine, uh, basically they went off the rails. They were barbarians. They were yeah, they were eating people for fun, and they also taught a lot of warfare. So they're the ones that get the bad rap uh, simply because of, uh, of something that we don't know about. Why some of the watchers decided to make humans and um, sort of create this strange race. And that's what precipitated the uh, creation of the flood. They had to be wiped out from the face of the earth because they were very tall, they were covered in red hair, and they were barbaric. Uh, so if you read the original 
Book of Enoch, uh, it's all in there, how there was an agonizing moment where the gods had to wipe out everything on earth to start from scratch. So we owe them a modem of gratitude because right now, if we hadn't wiped out these giant uh, man-eating people, we would have been living on a planet of red-haired giants with very few humans. Do you believe that civilization has been destroyed several times? Oh, God, yes. There's been at least 13 near-end of uh, civilization scenarios in the last 11,000 years. I mean, the last one was only about uh, 4,500 years ago. Uh, we tend to be either get uh, pummeled by meteorites or we tend to get hit by mass coronal ejections from the sun. And they happen much more regularly uh, than we believe. And certainly there was one major collapse at the beginning of the Ice Age, which would have been 10,800 BC. And here the Egyptians pick up the story where they said that the groups of gods were looking for a new place to live because there was a real problem with the weather. Uh, it was very cold. So they chose the Nile and the lower sections of Egypt in which to build the uh, sacred mounds on that coast upon which would be built the future historic temples. So that's just one case where we had uh, in a scenario which was taken out 800 years later by the Great Flood. And we've had a lot of them since then as well. Why did people leave ancient settlements like Skarabre? Skarabre? Well, most things to do with weather, believe it or not. Uh, Skarabre and Orkney are fascinating. In fact, my, my, my current book is actually all about the uh, uh, hidden secret past of Scotland, which was a huge exercise in understanding why our megalithic culture starts in Orkney and not in southern Britain, as you'd expect. Uh, the megalithic culture went down uh, from Scotland and from Ireland, not up from France. And uh, I was looking at the climatological charts and sudden dips where people would move off the islands onto the mainland, and they always occurred around major climatic shifts. Uh, one of them happened around 3,000 BC, about the time when Stonehenge was also being expanded, by the way. And also uh, 2,600 BC was another major migration, and then another one at 1,300 BC, where virtually everyone from the uh, Isle of Lewis and the Outer Hebrides moved to the Scottish mainland. And it's all to do with either meteorites, uh, one of them actually landed in the Irish Sea, which created huge problems in terms of methane eruption. Uh, no jokes, please. Uh, and um, the other one was uh, also around uh, 1300 BC when we had a mass coronal ejection which set fire to much of the Near East, and that affected the, the uh, climate in uh, Northern Europe. It forced people to find a much warmer, stable uh, area in which to grow crops. Where are the best-made crop circles you have ever seen yourself? Oh, uh, the best one. That's a tough one. There's so many. But we have to go back to, what, 1999, when I actually saw uh, uh, an incredible design, which I actually had sent out eight different requests from people around the world without them realizing that they're part of a project. And the idea was to predict the big one of the season. And you know what? All these people who had not conferred with each other came up with the same area outside the town of Devizes in, in, in southern England, in Wiltshire. And they also got the geometry pretty much right on. And the, the timing was a bit of a problem. Uh, timing between the other world and the, the human world there's never synchronizes. Uh, we all got it within 48 hours, and we actually we're prepared to go on a hill to watch this thing manifest. Uh, and I remember sitting in my house in Wiltshire 
uh, waiting with a group of people with night vision cameras and uh, brandy and everything to get out and finally catch the matter. Although there are at least 60 eyewitnesses that have seen crop circles uh, appearing. And they go back to the early 1800s, by the way, uh, way before the time of Doug and Dave and all that nonsense. And um, it's like someone put a gas pellet in my room. We all fell asleep. And I remember waking up in the morning at 7, realizing that we've got, we've missed it, uh, ran to the airfield, but I'd previously booked a pilot without telling him where we were going. And uh, we flew over, well, I flew over the, uh, the crop circle with him. And there it was, exactly where eight people predicted where it would be and with the geometry that we said would be. So that was an incredible moment. And the reason why this happened was because uh, we found out later that it was one of the most powerful crop circles ever laid down energetically. Uh, I had a friend of mine who drove there, parked this car, quarter of a mile away, and every single pack of batteries, 16 packs of batteries went dead the moment he got near the crop circle, fried his electric equipment, so I guess it wasn't really meant for us to be. Roddy wants to know your thoughts on the Tory meteorites. The Tory meteorites? I've never heard of them. Wow, I'm flummoxed here. I think it's right. a Tory party. Next one. <laughs> Next one. Has anyone deciphered a type? <laughs> has anyone deciphered a type of language that crop circles are speaking to us through? and what they are saying to us now. Well, I wrote all of that in, uh, in Secrets in the Fields, my first book, uh, and it's just been republished, so that's where the information is. There's, it's a kind of a mathematical, geometrical language which the early designs can actually be deciphered by indigenous people. They were the ones that helped us make uh, up the language at the very beginning of the phenomenon, and they show that there's a progression in terms of logic. And most of them were simple things like uh, sky talking to earth. Uh, it was like an ABC. And you, uh, looking back on it now, it's funny that we were looking at this stuff and only when we got the, uh, uh, the information correctly, in the next season, the crop circle would then up the language a little bit more. Uh, some of them are to do with new mathematical theorems. Uh, some of them are to do with healing uh, modalities, which were still in point this very day with incredible success. And the, the other one has to do with the uh, technological blueprints. Uh, on the cover of the book, uh, there's a picture uh, that I fought for with my publisher. They didn't want that picture, but I knew what it did. Uh, cut a long story short, uh, we knew that it was part of a technological device to do with anti-gravity that would wean us off fossil fuels. And I didn't write the, uh, this in the book because the people, the scientists that would be reading this would actually get the, uh, the message and they would actually figure it out by themselves. Well, it turns out 10 years later that there's uh, two scientists in London, one in Oklahoma and two in Australia that have built that picture in, as a 3D model. And they said, and I quote, it defies gravity. So we have been given the material uh, or the technology to actually wean ourselves off all these fossil fuels, uh, which are not helping with climate change, although it's not the only cause of climate change. Uh, so they're waiting for the right politically expedient moment in which to bring this out to the public because, as you probably know, uh, the guy that invented the water-powered car in Seattle uh, announces it to the media and two days later he's run over by his own vehicle. So you can read between the lines. <laughs> Why don't we hear about crop circles anymore? Well, you kind of do, except uh, most of these days are all man-made. Uh, they're all copies of, uh, of the originals, or uh, they keep adding things to the originals. 
Uh, they've been caught several times. Uh, some people have actually been uh, gone to court and faced multiple fines. Uh, so if you want to look at the real phenomenon, you really got to go back to 1999 and before that, going all the way to the 18th century. Uh, it was a piece of communication. Uh, and like every communication, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then we just have to basically publish this stuff and get on with it, the deciphering the application of it. And I can say that we are making huge progress with the information that we recovered over 20 years ago. It's being applied very subtly. Uh, you don't hear about it uh, because, a, believe it or not, there's a, uh, a Schedule D notice in Britain of uh, events to do with crop circles. And the Schedule D notices are only issued during time of war to prevent propaganda from leaking uh, uh, out into the mainstream and also to um, give the enemy uh, an idea of what we're up to. So it's funny that a crop circle phenomenon that's been basically shown throughout mainstream media as a hoax made by two guys, which is a complete joke, um, that it was actually an invention made up by a fictitious press agency that was uh, connected to MI6, by the way, and this is all validated uh, as a, in the research, um, that they should have be basically subjected to huge censorship. So you know that there's something going on. And it's all behind the scenes. And it's, uh, I, ca I can say that there's good news. Everything that we learned over 25 years of research, excuse me, research is being implemented. Have you heard of the Bolivian tribe who float on a lake? Oh, the Uros. Uh, yes, I know them very well. I go there every year. Uh, they don't actually float on the lake, uh, to uh, phrase that correctly. They build islands out of the only thing that grows on Lake Titicaca which is this uh, Tocara reed, and they can use part of it as food, part of it to make clothing, part of it to make a hut, and the rest is actually used as a foundation to build these floating islands. And they last about five years, uh, and as you expect, they start rotting. Uh, so as they actually build one island, they're already building the next one to, in which to move to, so they keep sort of hopping from island to island, uh, and that's how they survive for thousands of years. Uh, at least uh, 10,000 years they've been doing this. Uh, they're lovely people. Uh, and they, again, trace their story back to the time of a flood in the Pacific. Uh, they lived with the gods uh, who were a bit different from them. And they said we came from a, a lost island called Labukiji, somewhere between Easter Island and South America. Uh, went down during the Great Flood. So they still have these incredible stories. Uh, totally recommend you go there. How easy is it for a British bloke to mingle with them? How easy is it to? For a British bloke to mingle with them, how easy is that? It's, well, the, uh, I speak Portuguese, uh, and uh, they speak 16th century Spanish as a second language. Uh, and the two languages back then were pretty much identical. So if I just sort of Spanishize the Portuguese, they can understand what I'm saying, and we can have a good conversation. But Aymara in itself is uh, almost a dead language. It's one of the oldest languages on the planet. And here's the funny thing. Unlike normal language, for example, which is organic, it develops because of use. So over 10,000 years, we go from Ugg to I'll have a burger with fries with ketchup on the side. Uh, Aymara shows up completely developed with a syntax that a computer can understand. And it has an algorithm that we take a language and uh, transcribe it into Aymara and from Aymara into any other language. It's a bridge language. So what was this doing on Lake Titicaca at 13,000 feet 12,000 years ago, I wonder? Wow, fascinating. 
Any skeletons of the giants are the skeletons on Jekyll Island. <laughs> I'm not familiar with Jekyll Island. I'll have to ask uh, <laughs> the, the other side of that personality. Um, there are lots of skeletons, uh, hundreds and hundreds. They're in Britain. Uh, they came from the giants' graves during the Victorian era when they were being dug up and then taken to the British Museum and made to disappear. And I know this for a fact because I have friends who are archaeologists who gave up doing archaeology because they were totally astonished at the destruction of evidence because they couldn't fit it, uh, fit it in into the biblical view that the earth is only 6,000 years old. So um, you go to America, it's the same situation. Uh, we have uh, giant graves all the way through uh, the Appalachia. Uh, these people originally came from a sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic, according to the Cherokee who found them. Uh, there's not many left when they came across them. Uh, the mounds were dug up uh, anywhere between eight and a half feet to 12 feet. And you still find them in New Zealand, of all places. There's a hill in the North Island of New Zealand called uh, the hill of the red-haired giant people, and they were still alive in the 19th century, and the Maori interacted with them. And I actually found the story in 1952 of uh, a giant with the, uh, and this was about 12 feet tall, this person, covered in red hair, washes up on a beach uh, not far from Auckland, and uh, still with the, the muscle and the tissue intact. It hadn't been dead for very long. It was found by a young girl, calls her mother, the mother calls the council, Council shows up with a flatbed truck to take this 12-foot uh, humanoid away, and that's the last you've heard of it. And I contacted the uh, journalist who picked up the story, and he said to me, well, I tried to dig up a bit more information as to where this body went to, and I lost my job. Uh, they just can me. Uh, they don't want to talk about it. Uh, it seems to be offending all the academics in New Zealand because they don't want to talk about the fact that there's a parallel civilization living with us at some point. They really cannot handle this. Do you think some of those remains end up in the Vatican? I don't know. Uh, it's hearsay. We have no proof, but we do know from people on the inside at the Smithsonian and the British Museum, uh, at the very least, that the bones do go missing, and sometimes they just turn into powder. They grind them into powder to make the evidence go away. Uh, I've seen the same thing in Malta as well. Uh, it's totally corrupt down there. Uh, I've talked to the archaeologists who run the museum, there, and they palm me off with fake skulls and stuff like that. And I've got photographs of their own technicians holding the elongated skulls of these eight and a half foot tall people, 10,000 of which were unceremoniously dumped into this uh, hole, uh, an underground chamber in Malta because of a tidal wave that uh, went over the island about 5,000 years ago. Uh, so there's a real suppression of this information worldwide. How do you tell the difference between a real crop circle and a made one? Oh, I can see crop circles are still popular this very day. Uh, I could be here forever on this one. Uh, basically, there are changes to the molecular structure of the plants. There's a change in the soil structure, the, uh, the dehydration of the local soil, and the water uh, uh, table is also being uh, severely affected. The plants are also um, superheated to 1600 degrees Celsius in a fraction of a second. It uh, heats the water inside the stems. And that's what makes them subtle and make them, makes them bend over at 90 degrees. Now, and you can check this under the microscope, by the way. Uh, and um, if you leave the plants alone, they come back to the original position uh, because they're not being damaged. That's the incredible thing. So you have changes at the cellular level, which can be seen under the microscope as well. 
you have addition of uh, ferrides in the soil, which you can't do unless you throw magnets into the soil and sit there with a truckload of magnets dumping this stuff into the soil. Uh, and uh, there's, let's see, there's unknown mathematical theorems, which are very difficult to create on a piece of paper, let alone in a field in the middle of the night in an imprecise canvas. And these are six new theorems for the first time in 2,000 years since the time of Euclid, who is the foundation of our modern mathematics. So that's just, uh, uh, in a nutshell, how you tell the difference between one and the other. But the big difference here is that the plants are not damaged. They're actually hovering above the soil. And I've seen those on many, many occasions. Uh, back in the day when I was in Wiltshire researching this, I'd go there first thing in the morning, and you stomp on these things, and literally, you can hear the air being squeezed out because the plants literally are about bent about this far above the soil, 90 degrees hovering. The seeds are just barely touching the ground. It's very magical. So the moment I step on them, crash, I've broken the stem. Wow. Scott wants to know your thoughts on the Aztec family. The Aztec family? Uh, you mean the Aztec civilization? Um, actually, I don't have, hold them in very high uh, esteem. They basically came very, very late from the southwest of America, around Arizona. They moved south into Mexico, and they appropriated the culture of the Olmec and the Maya, uh, which were thousands and thousands of years old. In fact, the Maya put their culture at 9,600 BC. And um, they inherited a lot of information, which they had no idea what, what was going on. And they, unfortunately, to the chagrin of 50,000 people a year, uh, they would uh, kill 50,000 people uh, in order to appease the sky god from having the sky falling down on top of their head. So they basically came a long, long time after the civilization that originally built uh, what's today Mexico City, uh, Techniclan and uh, Teotihuacan and all those locations. Uh, but they really had no idea what they were doing. In fact, the Spanish, uh, who were barbarians when they arrived, even they were appalled at what the Aztec were doing. They were really very rudimentary people. Uh, so they got a lot of uh, attention. But uh, I think the Olmec and the Maya are not only older, they're also far more genuine and far more interesting. What do you think about the recent alien attack in Peru? Alien attack? Have we been attacked by aliens? There was reports of giant aliens. No, I, I didn't see them attacking. It didn't say they attacked, I don't think, but they were like in hanging out in trees. Not heard of that one. I, <laughs> someone from Peru, and I have a lot of friends there, they would have said to me, you need to get on the plane right now. Um, I'm going to put my skeptic bag on there. And by the way, a skeptic is someone who does not draw a, a conclusion. Someone who just basically says, okay, that's interesting. We'll put it into the envelope that says, let's see where that goes. All right, next question. Have you studied much about the ancient Greeks? You know, I haven't. Uh, it's something that's been on my mind for quite a long time. The ancient Greek civilization borrowed their knowledge from the Middle East, from the Persians, and also from the Egyptians. So if you really want to know what was going on in Greece, you have to go back to those two cultures. Now, those I'm very familiar with. Uh, by the time you get to the Greek culture and all the gods and all the folklore and the uh, idea of this very dysfunctional family around Zeus who are basically either shagging each other or doing strange things with their daughters, uh, I get a sense that the Greeks didn't quite understand what they had picked up from the Persians and the Sumerians and the Egyptians. 
because the Egyptians, even uh, were uh, monastic, the Greek uh, scholars, when they came to Alexandria and also Sais, which is the main temple at the time. So this is 1500 years BC. Uh, and they said, you know, you Greeks are too young. Now, wait till you've been around as long as we have, uh, where you've seen the sun basically uh, rise where it now sets and sets where it now rises four times, um, a time when the earth was actually upside down. When you've been around to notice this, you know what you're talking about. It's a wonderful kind of polite backhanded compliment, but it shows that the Greeks were picking up other information. Not that the Greek culture is not incredible, because of course it is, uh, but it's the fact that they borrowed it from someone else, but they also missed out a lot of very important information. So you're saying there's a lot of plagiarism in religions. <laughs> uh, yes, there is. And it, it seems to get worse and worse as we get towards the Roman era. By the time the Romans show up, they have no idea what's going on. It's just superstition. So the important thing about the research is that you've got to go back as far back as you can take this to get a sense of the truth, uh, to get a sense of the information uh, that hasn't been politically altered. I mean, the Sumerians, for example, they shout out of the middle of nowhere. Well, you don't just shout out of the middle of nowhere with language and mathematics, the stars, and also how to build pyramids. Uh, that has to come from somewhere. There has to be a developmental stage. And now I've discovered that the Armenian people are the ones to hold that information. And they said, yes, duh. Uh, when the weather changed around 6000 BC, we went down into the lower plains of Mesopotamia. And that is the civilization layer underneath the Sumerian layer. So if you start looking at the Armenian information, you see a lot of the places where the Sumerians got their information from. And by the time the Babylonians plagiarized the uh, Sumerians, there's huge discrepancies in the story. They're now made to be the bad people. The Babylonians are now the great people. And then the Hebrews and the Jews come along, and then they stole their information and turn into the Bible. So you see how it all evolves bit by bit, and it makes less and less sense as we go along. So if we can go back as far as we can uh, to the uh, source, uh, the better the information. All right. So do you think ancient people were so correct at aligning mega builds with the stars, i.e. the pyramids, and did they have help from above? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't know. Um, we know that every single temple on the face of the earth, and specifically the megalithic temples, were all commemorating the date of their inauguration by positioning themselves to a specific astral object. Now, sometimes it's the uh, winter solstice sunrise or the equinox sunrise. Those seem to be predominant in everything I've uh, analyzed. Uh, sometimes the moon, which is very difficult to predict because it moves every 18.6 years. Uh, but you definitely have the uh, focus on Orion uh, around the world, uh, sometimes as long as 10,500 BC in Egypt, by the way, uh, and certainly uh, mimic uh, in places like Peru and Japan. Now, where, as to whether they got it from someone else, that's a, a kind of a fine line. Uh, the research that I've done shows that there was a an interaction between the people that originally built these places that we call the gods. And then they handed to us uh, after the flood when we have a lineage of people who are half human, half divine. So in other words, we intermarried them and we borrowed the information from them and kept it going for a few thousand years uh, until, and this is, comes from the Egyptians, uh, the first uh, pharaoh of a purely human bloodline hits the throne in 3100 BC. So uh, we definitely inherited this from another culture that was here a long, long time ago. 
the one thing that I'm beginning to uh, figure out, and again, the more I talk to um, indigenous people, the more the information uh, comes together. They said that there was a long time ago where not only the gods came from the bell stars of Orion, but also humans originated from there as well. And I'm hearing more of this around the Pacific. So it's a story that I'm picking up. Uh, it's not that I don't believe that aliens are here and they don't exist. They are here and they do. But they also tend to make their communication and their interaction very subtle. Uh, if you know Star Trek, you'll understand what I'm saying. Gene Roddenberry attended seances with a very famous psychic. And if you look at the scripts for the second generation, you'll see a lot of uh, universal law wrapped into them. And one of them is the prime directive. It's basically the law of non-intervention. So let's say you have a much more developed and advanced culture that suddenly ends up here on Earth for all kinds of reasons. You want to minimize your contact with people who are less developed because as we found out, when we go to New Guinea and stumble upon a tribe of people who've never seen people wearing clothes or a watch or a cell phone, you are going to uh, drastically alter the course of their development in one minute. Okay, You have to develop things slowly at the pace of the local tribe. So the contact would have been minimal. So I suspect that the original contact came to the fact that we've been around for tens of thousands of years. Uh, probably millions of thousands of years. And certainly if you talk to the Aboriginal people in Australia, uh, they'll just roll their eyes back and they'll say, well, we have stuff that goes back to two million years. We know about events from there. And they are actually being validated bit by bit by geologists. So it's a bit of everything. It's a bit of the fact that we've had uh, help from Space Brothers, but also mostly that uh, we are basically are the progeny of a group of gods who already already here long before we developed our own civilization and then handed it on to us. Wow, Freddie, we've only answered 20% of the questions, but we've run out of time. Perhaps we could get you back on another occasion. Huge thank you for spending time with us. And oh, can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you? Well, they can go to invisibletemple.com and there'll be books and lots of documentaries. In fact, I'm finishing three documentaries on ancient Egypt right now, which is years late so uh giving you 45 minutes is quite an achievement uh, believe me uh, and i'm very happy to do so oh well thank you for coming on enjoy maine we will hope to see you again thank you freddie cheers a good point believe me <laughs> take care right, bye -bye. Thanks, bye. well and thank you viewers for all your questions as well right without ado let's bring professor tim wilson back in how are you doing tim I, I'm doing very well. I did enjoy your previous guest. Um, and uh, and Fred, Fred has got a lot of interesting points. I, my background is religion. Um, and I must say, I, I, I very much like the word sceptic. Um, I, 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 I think I could go even further than Freddie, and I'd say it comes from a Greek word, um, uh, skeptomai, which means um, to consider. So, so e e even though it, it, it's used as a word for doubting, uh, ultimately, its original its original root is to consider, to think. So we should think about everything, even things we don't agree with. That gives us all something to think about. And if you're not familiar with Professor Tim's work, he's got almost 100k subs on YouTube. Link is in the description box. You can check him out. He is absolutely prolific, posting videos every few minutes. Get down there. It's um, endless. Yes. And he's been I, I, on here a few... Yeah, I don't feel I'm prolific, really, sure. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so, this evening we're going to talk about Andrew Malkinson. I did 
send you an article that I read about him um, a few days ago, and I was absolutely disgusted by it. Let me just introduce this subject to some of the viewers who are not familiar. But basically, this guy, he there was evidence that he hadn't assaulted a woman. I'm not going to say the R word. The evidence came out many years before, and he did another 13 years before he was actually released. He was released this year, and it's been all over the news here in the UK. But police and prosecutors reported new in 2007 that another man's DNA was on the clothes of the woman, and this guy ended up wrongly imprisoned for the R word, stayed behind for 13 more years, total of 17 years for an R word that he did not commit. His conviction was quashed last month due to this DNA evidence. Case files obtained as he battled to be freed showed that officers and prosecutors knew in 2007 that forensic testing had identified a searchable male DNA profile that did not match poor Malkinson. They opted to take no further action and there is no record that they told the Criminal Cases Review Commission the body responsible for investigating miscarriages of justice, according to the report. And they're, they're, there's all kinds of uh, reviews and investigations being called for this now, and they're trying to get Keir Starmer on the stand. So what are your opening thoughts then, Tim? Well, I think, I, I think it's really shocking. I, the, thing that, the thing that I would probably emphasize is he was given an, an initial sentence of six and a half years, and because he protested his innocence, I mean, we go back to our, to, to our religious words, you know, the word protest is to shout, which is where you get the word Protestant, uh, people who, sh who were shouting out the Bible. But uh, he protested his innocence, and therefore he got an extra 10 years. And that happened after 2007, after the police, uh, after the Crown Prosecution Service knew that there was, uh, that the original prosecution was unsafe. Um, and, and that's what I find so extraordinary, that they then, they, they then punished him further because he was refusing to admit his guilt. And why should he admit his guilt? He was not guilty. And he was not guilty. And in 2009, uh, when, when, the, when the CPS eventually, and, and it has guidance that if it, if it knows there's a problem, it should write to the CCRC, the um, uh, Crown, uh, what, 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 what are they? It's now run by Helen Pitcher. I can't know what they're called anyway. They're the people who are supposed to review problems if there are problems. And, uh, and and it's supposed to, uh, the CPS is supposed to contact the CCRC at the earliest opportunity in any case in which there's any doubt about the safety of the conviction. And, the, and they knew there was an issue in 2007. It took them seven, eight, nine, two years to actually bother to do that. And when they did it, the CCRP ends up saying that, that, that there's a report in August saying that they are bemused. They are bemused by the submissions and they don't think that just because there's uh, someone else's DNA on the complainant's vest, uh, that's, um, that, that, that surely doesn't uh, produce a successful referral in view of all the other strong ID evidence. Well, the only ID evidence against him seems to be that he was identified in a video lineup right at the beginning. I mean, the, um, the, 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 um, the, the story is horrific. The, the, the girl who was attacked, the lady who was attacked, said in her evidence that she had uh, scratched her assailant. Uh, 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 there was a deep scratch on his face that she had made. There was no scratch on Andy Malkinson's face. So the, the, the this strong ID evidence is just 
guff. It's just guff. And we shouldn't be, we, we, we shouldn't accept this sort of, um, uh, the, the, this sort of bluster by the authorities when they got it wrong. I, it's not only that. It's, it's not only the fact that these people have got it wrong. It's the fact that nobody has had the courtesy and the um, charm, the grace to invite Malkinson into number 10 or into see the Home Office uh, or into see the Justice Minister. The Justice Minister has said that he would meet him at some point, but now is the time. Now is the time to say, come in and have a chat with us. You know, it's not the time to say, oh, I'm going to get on my knees and apologise. Just come and have a chat. And, and I don't understand why the why these people are being so mute and so mealy-mouthed and so uh, reticent when it, there's a clear uh, the, 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 there's clear evidence of fouling up, and and I, I find it extraordinary. I think it's because they're characters out of Kafka's The Trial. And before we, I put this question to you, um, just an observation from my own experience. What I saw was people who are innocent who are convicted in court. There are mitigating circumstances and there are aggregating factors. And mm -hmm. a huge aggregating factor, if you're in court and you've been convicted and then you protest your innocence, is the judge will classify you as showing absolutely no remorse. So they compound your sentence on the basis that you are, you've been found guilty in court, therefore you must be guilty, and you protest your innocence, so you're not showing any remorse, and they give you an even bigger sentence because of that. So the first question for you, Tim, is from Darren Whitfield. Should we not be holding these people to account and possibly in prison who knew it was not him through DNA? Which which ties into what we've been talking about, Lucy Letby. I, I'm calling for yes. the hospital managers to, to be uh, indicted for endangerment of babies. Well, the hospital managers knew for a long time that there was a problem and they were sort of conspiring to... They, they were so obsessed with their reputational control that they allowed this to go on. So, so I mean, I, I do, do you remember the other day, uh, there was this amazing interview with Dr. Ravi Jairam. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, and that, he, that almost had me in tears as well, watching that. Well, I mean, he, was su he is such a noble man, um, as, as indeed Stephen Brary. Uh, but I, it's just, um, th th this man had tried to, had, had tried to intervene. He was thwarted by the managers. And then just before the police got involved, he was made by these ghastly people to write a letter of apology to Lucy. And it, it, it is just, I mean, you know, that that's Greek tragedy at its, at its worst. And I, I've, I, I have my own gripes with NHS management in any case. Um, but, but I think it's, we, we come back to the same thing about, management and control now uh in, in answer to darren I, I i really don't oh darren sorry i'm i'm mixing you up with the with, with with the magician darren um no in in answer to darren i don't think it's possible to imprison people who knew about it because i don't think they necessarily knew but they certainly suspected and it's about incompetence and i think that might actually uh be a serious enough offense to to to, to warrant a criminal investigation it, it, it's about incompetence and it's about somebody suffering uh, as a consequence of their incompetence and their um, failure to pass on information. And that failure 
I mean, you know, in the end, uh, who, who is it? Sakir said that uh, um, he made this great fuss a while ago. I take full responsibility for every decision of the Crown Prosecution Service that I was direct uh, when, when I was director of uh, public prosecutions. Well, now I, I think he gave an interview on Sky Television the other day, and he, he's clearly reining back on that and say, "Well, you know, the people did. The people passed on the information to his lawyers. They did what was appropriate." and uh, and, and, and that's enough. I don't think it is enough. Somebody was in prison for 17 years. And then when he got out of prison, he was uh, on the sex registers list. Uh, and none of this was necessary. None of this was just. And the system has gone out of its way not to take responsibility and not to put it right. So it's not it's not good enough to be waving our hands in the air and putting him on television and doing these little interviews. The, the system that is the top of our system should be should be at his door it shouldn't be for him to come to them uh like like the windrush generation it shouldn't be for the windrush generation to appeal for um the home office to give them money to give them compensation it should be for the home office to be genuflecting to these people that they have wronged and wronged and wronged and wronged and wronged and it's not good enough to say the system will do, you know, is very slow. No, the system has made mistakes and it makes mistakes again and again and again because it's controlled by a lot of very arrogant individuals who don't read, who are lazy and who take shortcuts. And then they think it's done. Sorry, just add a bit, I, I get just quite add emotional a, about this one. Good, that's what we want. And then let's add a bit onto that for Darren. In America, you've got the prosecutors with absolute immunity so they can pull whatever dirty tricks they want out of the bag to convict people. And when it comes to light that they've suppressed evidence or they've done other things that are in the gray areas of the law, they have absolutely no consequences whatsoever. So if you're trying to get your conviction rate up, you're going to pull out every resource possible. And quite often, these people are doing things that should have criminal consequences, but they don't. Um, let's just read this comment from Sego, and thanks for the super chat, Katie. It's impossible how difficult the system makes it to walk back, walk back their mistakes. Innocent people shouldn't have to suffer 17 years imprisonment on behalf of the mediocrity. I Absolutely. agree. Do you think that it's incompetence, or do you think that some of them are just the psychopaths working in the system? Or just well, my, they have no my, empathy for this yeah. person. My experience of law is that it's uh, it's about people who have good memories for what they're doing, and who are and, and who are interested in control. And uh, I, I don't think it's about empathy. I don't I don't think empathy is part of their system. Uh, I, I wish I'd been a lawyer. I, I enjoy the law enormously, but I think it's um, I, I think it's fundamentally flawed in the way in, in the way it operates both here and in the states. And uh, and we need people to oversee that. And, and, and when we've got people like, um, for example, a a Alex Chalk, who's the justice secretary at the moment, when, when it's Alex Chalk, uh, he's the man who endorsed Lee Anderson's use of 15th century high Danish um, to commend the migrants to return to France, um, something he cannot do legally, uh, something they cannot do legally. It's politically naive. It's legally ignorant. It's morally gauche. And this is the man... Uh, in charge of justice in this country. I, 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 I'm, 
it, it staggers. I, I am I am staggered. I am really staggered that these people are in charge. Well, some of the viewers want to take action, and Roddy is wondering. Where do we take our complaints about the justice system? Is there a certain government body that we can complain to about things? There's, there's very little we can do when we when, when we find there's something wrong in our country. What we have to do, the, the, the first port of call is your MP. You need to write clearly to your MP. That means you put your address uh, and your telephone number on the letter. You cannot write to somebody else's MP. It has to be the MP for your area. That MP, unless it's Nadine Doris, who's absent, that MP is legally responsible, morally responsible, to pass your 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 your, your letter on to the relevant department. Now, you're not necessarily going to get overnight change, but at least you get heard, and your letter will then be filed in the system. The more people who write to the system and say there is a problem with the justice system, uh, the more these things will be recognised. But you have to put your name to it. And you have to stand up and be counted. I, I think it's I, I think it's a good thing. I don't know what else you can do. I don't think going on marches is remotely effective at the moment. The government is uh, wise to marches, and I think we have to find different ways to get our views across. But the internet is very successful. Uh, social media is a way of getting another voice out there than the uh, than the strident voice of control in the government. I know it's highly uh, distressing this case, but Glasgow Dave has asked for your thoughts on Lucy Letby. Well, you know, seven babies. I I, I have enormous um, concern and uh, an empathy with the, with the parents here because I was a premature baby, and I, I I was extremely premature. I wasn't expected to live, and uh, so I I I think you know what what if there'd been a Lucy Letby around there then. I wouldn't be here now. So I owe my life to the neonatal nurses who do such, a, such an astounding job. And while we're criticising one who got it badly wrong and who was vicious and villainous, we should, at the same time, I think, be saluting the incredibly hard work of those people who give their lives for us, for people like me. Uh, now, in, in the same way, I, I, I would say we're, we're so focused on the wrongdoing that we also don't think enough about the victims. We have so many families whose lives have been torn apart by this vicious woman, and uh, and 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 they need they need support, they need compensation, they need help, and yet you know in our system they're now having having to take out private cases, um, and 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 they're doing that tremendous on them, but our system should be there. That's what our system should be there to do, to say, look, you are, a, you are a victim of serious crime. We should get more than just a letter through the post saying you're a victim of crime. You know? Ron is asked, is it possible that Lucy Letby is a miscarriage of justice? I've seen a lot on that recently. I think, I, I, I think first of all, she has admitted it. Secondly, she kept a coded diary of her um, uh, murders. So I think I, I think it's very unlikely that this is a miscarriage of justice, and I think uh, I, I I don't think I don't think I'd like to take that any further. Okay, yeah, it's um, it's unappetizing. We've got Munchausen syndrome is one of the things that has been cited. Um, the judge cited sadism. 
I watched some pundit on TV this morning cite addiction to code blue and someone else cited God complex. Have you um, analyzed any of these? No, no, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think it's our job to look into the mind of somebody who is evil. And I think, um, I, 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 think, I think evil is the most extraordinary phenomenon. People can slip into it. Ordinary people can slip into it. Once it takes hold, that's it. And, um, you know, we are all just a step away from that. I have, um, you know, I have enormous sympathy for people who find themselves caught up in crime. And we, we, we don't do enough in our prison system to uh, deal with this issue. We, our prison system should be about reforming people. Even if they're going to be staying there for the rest of their lives, they still have the rest of their lives to live. And, you know, I, I think about the Birdman of Alcatraz. But uh, everybody is potentially good, but it's very easy for us to slip into evil. I, 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 I don't think I need to go any further than that. Unknown stuntman wants to know your thoughts on the death penalty. I disapprove of it. I don't. I don't think we have a right to take somebody's life, um, and and and, that, and that's why I disapprove of Lucy Letby. Somebody in the end has to has to pull the trigger. Somebody has to pull the rope. Somebody has to inject the needle. I don't think anybody has that right. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I used to be for it, and I used to think, right, if someone, you know, if my family get killed in cold blood and it's witnessed and we know it is, then they deserve that. But when I, I experienced the system in America, my lawyer got Ray Crone, the snaggletooth killer off death row. And he was at a bar. The waitress was found dead. So they brought him in. There was a bite mark on it and DNA. Neither matched. They suppressed the DNA. They paid an expert witness $50,000 to say the teeth marks, the, the bite mark matched his teeth. He was with his mum that night. She was in the courtroom. They gave him 5000 to defend himself, spent millions prosecuting him. He was found guilty. His mum also had a heart attack, and he was within hours of getting executed. My lawyer, Alan Simpson, sued the state of Arizona to release the DNA. This guy was on death row for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. Sued the state of Arizona to release the DNA. They did not want to give it up. Federal judge forced them to give it up. It was run through a crime lab, matched a predator, my lawyer went and talked to the predator and he confessed to the crime. It could have been solved that easy. Ray Crone wasn't even given an apology. There are, there are more corrupt people in the justice system than are behind bars. That's what I learned. And after that, I started working with some young people out of London called One for Ten. And they went and interviewed death row exonerees and um, broadcast their stories on the internet. And there's so many. They estimate anywhere from 10 percent to a third of the people on death row in america could be mm -hmm. innocent yeah it's it, it's i mean justice is a is a really difficult thing um and unless you have unless you have somebody confessing and even there it's not necessary not not necessarily the case but i think you know we should be compassionate about people who who are in prison and we should and, and we should work really hard for their reformation uh, it's the least we can do because it's it's not a perfect system. So Angela said, do you think that psychologists are a waste of time in cases such as Letby's? Well, first of all, we don't... <laughs> what it, it, it all, It's always um, a good question. What is a psychologist or what is a psychiatrist? It, it, it's, such a, it, it's such an ambivalent um, 
definition. But no, they're not a waste of time. Nobody is a waste of time. But um, I, I, I don't think we necessarily need to look into somebody's head. We, we, we look at the facts and uh, that, that probably should be enough. Um, but uh, I don't think we should look into the, in, into the minds of people who are in, in the grip of evil. I don't think it does anybody any good. On a more happy note, um, is a question relating to your resplendence in yellow today. DJ Boggs wants to know if you're going to donate one of your hats to me. And he knows you've got plenty. <laughs> you've got plenty. I've, got, I've only got about five. This one came from Turkey the other day. My partner insisted on my wearing it. Um, and, uh, and it's very comfortable, actually. But this 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 is a this is a roomy hat. So it's a so so any moment I ought to start get get up and start start doing um what what is it dervish dancing around the room. But uh, I'm not going to <laughs> whirling, whirling, whirling. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the, there's a barrier to this DJ box because I can never get hats to fit my big head. Every time I go to the hat shop, <laughs> uh, oh, I know I know DJ box. He's a great fellow. There we are. There we are. I should give. I should. Give, I should give my hat to him, probably. But I'm not going to. I'm going to hold on to this one. Um, so Glasgow Dave wants to know what you think of people who become pen pals with serial killers. I think everybody needs. Everybody needs a friend. And uh, who 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 is it? Lord Thingamy. I can't remember his name now. Who was uh, who was friends with? Who who was a pen pal or went to visit Myra Hindley? You know, prison visiting is. Is a very positive thing to do. I know people who've done it, and I think it's a good thing. I think you know my friends who've been in prison. I've visited them. I've I've written to them, and I would I would hope if I were in the same situation, someone would write to me. Um, I remember when I was caught up in a rather unpleasant situation, and 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 found myself in a foreign jail, um, not for very long. I was extremely grateful to be to be visited and rescued, <laughs> and, I, uh, and, and and it was pure chance. It was pure chance that uh, this person visited me, and he realised I was just a mad English person, and oh. he, and he gave me a ticket to where I wanted to go, and he he looked after me, and I I, I will be eternally grateful because it was unpleasant and uh, grimy, and yeah, I don't want to even think back to it. it. It seemed it seemed like weeks that I was in there. I suspect it was hours. Uh, <laughs> sounds like you almost you almost had an episode of banged up abroad <laughs> yes almost 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 what yeah, country I, uh albania i i, I took oh. the wrong i took the wrong turning on the mountain path i should have gone to um uh, yugoslavia and um and i ended up with with my shepherd's crook which i no longer have sadly um i i was trying to make my way to vienna i thought i could do it on foot this was just absurd. It was. I didn't have a lot of money, um, but yeah, I, I did make friends. I and you know, you always make friends, and uh, and and so you know, you. I, I'm I'm never going to be completely dismissive of somebody who's found themselves on the wrong side of the system. You can always find yourself. And 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 in Russia, I I, I was certainly, I, I was I, I'm certainly very much aware because I've been I'm friends with the wrong people there. That if I were in Russia now, I would be in jail. Um, or, 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 or like Prigozhin, I would be dead. Um, but I, I, I don't see a great, sim a great uh, parity between myself and Prigozhin. I think he's also a foul, or was also a foul individual. But there we are. Yeah, this story's just broke, hasn't it? It but, has. Um, I'm, I, I'm bang on the nail here. Killed in plane crash. Yeah, I wonder who was responsible Prigozhin. for that. In the TVER region north of Moscow, 
He was on board the aircraft when it crashed, killing all town passengers. According to Russia's Federal Air Transport Agency, an investigation of the plane crash that happened this evening was initiated. According to the passenger list, first and last name, Prigozhin was included in the list. The flight appears to have been traveling between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Mm. Wagner-linked telegram channels have reported the plane was shot down by Russian air defenses. Oh, yes, it gets, gets it, it, it gets quite it quite gets quite muddy, doesn't it? If um, Wagner and... fighters had been promised an amnesty in nearby nearby Belarus, and there's videos of the plane going down on all over the, the internet. Yes, well, but, uh, Lukashenko in Belarus isn't uh, isn't very reliable, and has pulled back on his offers. And um, I, I, I think I think there's much more that will come out about this. And I think, um, yeah, it was it, it was inevitable that Prigozhin would meet his end fairly soon. And I suppose it's just uh, surprising he didn't fall out of a window earlier. I've, uh, I thought exactly the same when all that happened. Absolutely, uh, Professor Tim. It's always a great delight, especially to see you in such resplendent colours. <laughs> uh, we we have run out of time. Can you let I'm the so sorry. know they, they can find you and support you? Well, you, you you can find me on uh, YouTube on uh, under what is it, Pro- Professor Tim Wilson or something, and uh, and I'm also on Instagram, and I've just recently gone on to TikTok, but I don't understand it. So if anyone if anyone understands TikTok more than I do, please get in touch and give me a lesson. All right, all of Professor Tim's links are in the description box. We hope to see you soon. You have a great rest of your day, my I look friend. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. So the Brigosian story is going to be continued with Andrew Gold and Stephen Knight. And we've got 350 in the live right now. So please check out our link for locals. It's in the description box below this video. We've got hundreds of people have gone over to locals. It's free to sign up. We're going to be doing an exclusive series on who killed E and M, who was his accomplice. You know what I mean? We're talking getting Ryan Dawson back on, Fred out of France, who was um, tracking the movements of Jean-Luc Brunel, etc. And Ray J has just put the locals link in the description box. So thank you, Ray J. I salute you for that. And let's bring the guys in so I can have my little break, shall we? Let's see where we are at. Hold on one second. Here we go. I'm following your locals, mate. Oh, hurry back's back. Okay. <laughs> oh, there is. <laughs> Sean, I was just I was just saying I'm following you on locals now. Oh, I will reciprocate. Yeah, you better do, mate. You better do some big stuff on our locals community. Stephen, you on it, yeah? All the cool kids are doing locals now, aren't they? I feel like, <laughs> feel like the old man having to learn something new. Uh, we'll I, teach I you about it. Yeah, please. Mm. I, I registered just so I could follow Sean, to be honest. So I'll uh, I'll check this <clears> out as well. But I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's great. There's uh, nothing gonna, on it yet. Yeah, it's and, just started. I'm going to go and I'm going to shave my hurry back and leave you guys to it. <laughs> <laughs> see you, mate. So relieved he said back then. <laughs> How are you, sir? It's good to see you. You know, Sean dangles it with the wire. So that's the only way he can do the razor on his back. <laughs> There's an image that, for everybody. There you go. That is, uh, that is a technique in half. I'm, I'm loving the setup nowadays, Andrew. I mean, it, Sort of looks like you could be giving a guided meditation as well. It's very, 
very zen, yeah. isn't it? I'm very relaxed, all of a sudden. It is, and it, I suppose that's ironic because I'm I'm probably the least zen person I know. I'm constantly stressed and anxious and annoyed at everything, and Why maybe that? that works. Why is that? What, what, what happened? Um, I well, let's, you let's know have what a it therapy is. Session. Let's let's have a therapy session. Get yourself. You know what it is. Well, well, we do. A lot of people are trying to be, and this is advice I'm giving out for free to everybody today people are trying to be zen everybody wants mindfulness or this or that to stop them stressing and thinking and all of that stuff and i get it but if you stop thinking and you're not stressed you're just thinking about dying and waiting to die so <laughs> it's best to keep busy let your head worry about i love it i don't want to be less uh stressed and anxious i love being anxious do you find do you find you perform a little bit better under pressure sometimes? I think I do. I find a gear that I wasn't aware I had if someone applies yeah. a little bit of pressure. Yeah, we're talking about work. Yes. So, um, um, yes, yes, I think so. I just enjoy it, you know. I've always enjoyed the humour. You know, I grew up Jewish, obviously, in the, the tradition of the Woody Allen, the Larry David kind of Mel Brooks, that kind of stressed humour. And I think that's how you get through stuff. Everyone has different ways of coping. Some people want to stay zen and mindfulness and all that stuff. And I, I do respect that. But for others, like you and me, Stephen, maybe we like to have stuff kicking off all the time. It's just nothing but internal rage. Yeah. And, uh, murder spree <laughs> fantasies for me. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. what are we talking about? So what, what's, been, what's been capturing your attention of late, wow. I know we've just had this this crazy story come out of Kentucky of the woman chained yeah. by her partner in in a bedroom. That's that's dark, isn't it? I can't think of any news story that sort of better grabs the attention than when you see somebody who's been locked up somewhere. Do you know what I mean? There's been a few stories over the years, haven't there? And you see like somebody's gotten out and there was a movie called Room uh, a couple of years ago as well. And I almost couldn't watch it because you do get so emotionally involved watching these people and you go, oh my God, they're free. Now this, as from what I can tell, and it's really early um, in the whole thing, you know, the, the news is just coming out and it was yesterday and nothing's really coming out in the last few hours. I've just been checking. Um, but this was just a couple of days. This woman was locked up by her husband, I think. I know she's the mother of the of their child uh, because she'd left. She came back to get her suitcases. She was leaving him, potentially. And he chained her up, put a chain around her neck like a dog. Well, you wouldn't do it to a dog, though, but you know that's the best sort of metaphor I've got, or simile. And uh, just left her there. And there's no indication as to whether he was thinking of actually coming back uh or anything she was able to i think sort of smash the windows she was like she stood up she's got a chain around her neck she's trying to smash the windows and people got you know saw her and the police were called and they had to get a ladder come in and just they had to break you know what was actually mad obviously there's sensationalism in the way these things are reported and we're guilty of it we do that as well but the daily mail have gone with um like moment woman chained to the floor of a Kentucky home like a dog is freed by axe wielding cops. I love that axe wielding <laughs> cops. Like the cops yeah, are nuts going around with axes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These I've rogue just noticed cops. This, this is just uh, incidentally. This is twice this has happened to me now, where we've been covering very dark, traumatic stories, and somebody in the comments has told me to smile more. Um, <laughs> that that would be very strange. And they're grinning like a Cheshire cat while Andrew's describing the abuse of some woman 
chained up oh in the house. That, that's optics. The optics of that wouldn't be great, but, I would imagine. But then you'll get people, because we just laugh now, saying, oh, you're talking about a serious topic like this and you're laughing, yeah. to which I would say, you know, you, you've got to sometimes. You know, This is our job. We're constantly reporting incredibly sad things that happen, and sometimes you have to laugh. That doesn't take away from the seriousness and the, the horribleness of what's happened. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something to something to be said about humor as a co coping mechanism when there's some dark topics out there. But it's interesting what you said about it being her partner, because and then contrasting that with movies like The Room and things like that, because in the movies or the, the horror situation, this is idea of stranger danger, isn't it? The unknown person lurking in the shadows, you know, to whip you away and hold you captive. Uh, but in reality, more often than not, it's usually somebody, you know, isn't it? A disgruntled partner, mm -hmm. a, a, a colleague, a family member, etc. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's true of you know these adult non consensual situations, and also sort of the adults with you know words we can't talk about too much on on YouTube or whatever, but with children or those those kinds of things, uh, it tends to be a family member, an uncle, a father. Uh, it tends to be men, not always, yeah. but it tends to be men who are who are doing these crimes, um, and. I mean, look, with with the adult to children thing, I mean, on, on my channel, we've been calling them PDF files. Uh, you've got to really pronounce that F uh, to stop it from being picked up by the algorithm or whatever it is, um, which is mad. But uh, they they do tend to pick up jobs that you would expect them to. And you'd almost not expect that to be true. You think that's a stereotype. It's they do obvious. tend to be, what do you say? It's, it's too obvious, isn't it? Some of yeah. you like you'd you like try hard, have a bit of self-respect as a PDF Ex file. You know, be a bit more exactly. serious. You know, ice cream van man, come on. <laughs> well, they do do that exactly. I went and interviewed loads of them in Germany. I was doing a whole project a couple of years ago around that, and time after time, it was like, well, I'm a teacher, but that has nothing to do with it. You know, these were people who had that affliction and had often offended, and they would say, oh, I'm a teacher, and oh, I just do this after school club, but that doesn't make me offend. And it's like, come on. So there are. I have to be careful not to make those professions sound like people in those professions are more likely to be those things, but people who are those things are more are more likely to do those professions. It's such a shame, isn't it? Because some of the most compassionate, lovely, beautiful people on the planet dedicate their time to helping children with things yeah. and they're, they're completely trustworthy and, you know, upstanding citizens. Then obviously, you know, you get the bad eggs that will prey on that. And like you say, you don't want to demonize all scout leaders, but there's certainly yeah. a correlation there, isn't there? Yeah, look, it's supposed to be 1% of men are exclusively that way. Uh, whereas like up to 10% you know, have those feelings, but it's not exclusive, so they can be with adults and they don't usually offend or anything. But it's 1% of, of, of men in general, which is a lot of people. It's more than like the army in America. So you're talking about three and a half million people, I think. Yeah, so, so something like that. Oh, no, I suppose that's not men. So it's 1.7 million or so, near 2 million of them. Um, when you get into places like the, the scouts, teachers, relig religious leaders... Anywhere where there's a community that, um, that 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 among its merits are secrecy and people not speaking up about the truth and things like that, that's where those people will thrive, and there probably are slightly more. I don't have empirical evidence to back that up; it would be impossible to find it. But if it's one percent of the male population, then in teachers and scouts and things, maybe it's two percent or something. You know, most teachers and scouts are probably lovely, nice people. Yeah. Well. 
where where do you go with trying to figure all this out in, in terms of trying to get a coherent, rational model of why people do these things? I know you've kind of looked at that particular topic through the lens of perhaps some sort of mental illness or Ill illness in general, some compulsion that one can't control. And it, this kind of swings us back to the Lucy Letby case that's currently playing out uh, in, the, in the shops at our nation. And uh, I think the, most, the more heinous the crime, the more people need to know the motivation why would somebody possibly do something that horrible and i kind of i don't know if i'm doing this because it's the correct way of thinking of it or whether i'm just opting out mentally by doing it my, my reasoning on this is well these people are clearly unwell they are compelled it's not in their control uh free will doesn't play a part in any of this they were always going to do this and that's what they've done because that's the way they are made and it is pointless and fruitless trying to find a reason that makes any logical sense. Uh, and I don't know if I'm saying that just to make the whole thing easier on myself or whether there's some truth in it. Where, where do you fall down on, on true evil? I think it's, I don't necessarily believe in, in evil as such. It's, it's, a, I think Sean is more of an, you know, that is evil kind of, th and I guess they were just talking about that now, which was really interesting. And whenever I hear people mention evil, I don't, I don't know if evil exists. There are psychopaths who lack empathy and they do things because it makes them feel good. I think that is also, funnily enough, around 1% of the population, both in men and women. Lucy Letby, we don't know her motive. We do know that she refused to show up. Okay, that might have been one other way of like, you know, pissing off her victims or, or whatever. It might have given her some sort of thrill. To me, it's more likely that she was so mortified by what she's done or the embarrassment of it or whatever that she couldn't show her face. Well, that suggests, if not remorse, at least a level of embarrassment that you don't typically associate with psychopaths. Mm. It could be that she's utterly delusional, complete lunatic. I think that sounds more likely. I mean, to me, a lot of the reports about her talk about her lacking attention. She needed attention uh, to be consoled by fellow doctors and nurses uh, because these things kept happening around her. So this is not to defend her. She's a lunatic. She's done the worst thing I've ever heard of anyone doing ever. Um, it's just to say, if we're looking for a rationale, it might just be that she's a lunatic and that she needed the attention. And, and how, how difficult must it be to be inside that head uh, of hers? She's writing all these mad things on paper. Do you see that all that yeah. mad stuff like straight out of Hannibal Lecter or something, Red Dragon? Like, Some help me. You know, semi-confessional, wasn't it, I think, as well? Yeah. I did yeah. this. Um, she did. Yeah, she wrote that. What's going on in that head? So I just think lunatic. I don't put her as... Look, we don't know, do we? We're speculating. But I don't, I don't look at her and go psychopath necessarily. I think lunatic. And I would be fascinated to be inside her head just from a second and see what's happening. It might just go, blah! Just, just like for the layman, what would you say, how would you distinguish between a lunatic and a psychopath? I think um, a, a lunatic can show remorse what, because people have psychotic episodes. Again, I'm not the expert. I'm not Shaham Das here, but I know people have psychotic episodes where they sort of go out of themselves and they don't remember having done certain things and they have a vague memory. They have a sort of split personality, that kind of thing. So That's just alcohol the, though, isn't it? That can be alcohol, and it can be being a vicious nurse who's gone around doing the worst things ever. It could just be that she has very... I mean, psychopathy is on a spectrum. So it could be that she is towards the end of psychopathy, where she has very little but not not zero empathy, because she did, did then go home and write all this stuff. I'm a terrible person. Look what's wrong with me, and all this stuff. So it suggests that at least at some moments of the day, 
she had some empathy, some understanding of how awful the things she'd done were. Because I cannot think of a more awful thing that, that you can do than that. Um, as to your other question about just these people in general who go about you know harming children, uh, that's a more complicated one because you do get a lot of them who are just psychopaths and they happen to have this affliction or, or this attraction. Some of them don't even have that attraction. They are just happy to go after adults or children. It's just that the children are easier to get. These, they're just psychopaths and they just do what they want. Then you've got these people who have the <clears throat> attraction but and they're not psychopaths, but it's all about cognitive biases and they convince themselves because they often had it happen to them when they were younger and they tell themselves, well, that hasn't bothered me. I'm actually fine. It's the rest of you guys that are telling me that it's wrong. You're all wrong because this is a beautiful thing. They tell themselves these mad lies and then... Unfortunately, because they're then pushed to the corners of society, because none of us want to interact with them, we want to wipe our hands of it. We, you know, we don't want to start giving therapy to these people or trying to help them. And I, and I understand that mo that feeling. That's how I feel. Uh, but it means that they are then isolated from the rest of us. They just go further and further into this sort of dark internet where they only talk to other people like them, and they all tell each other, just like flat earthers do, just like all these other communities, they tell each other that we normies are all wrong and that they're right to do what they do. So they're able to do it with without a guilty conscience. So that's what I think is going on. That's a that's a great answer. Very comprehensive, Andrew. I knew, knew I could rely on you for that one, yes. for, the, for the psychopath question. I knew you'd have that <laughs> somehow. But do you think in the UK we're having a little bit of a crisis of trust in our institutions? I mean, the, the, the government has been through so many scandals in recent years during, you know, COVID lockdowns, things like that. We're having, you know, high-profile instances of police betraying their trust and authority in some of the most heinous ways imaginable. We've just had this story of Lucy Letby where the hospital it hasn't showered itself in glory in the way it handled it and tried to brush it under the carpet and seemed to be on the face of it a lot more worried of a PR disaster than you know finding uh, the truth of the matter. Are, are we slowly losing faith in our institutions? Yeah, I, th I think we are, um, but but I don't think that's because the institutions have necessarily changed. I think, you know, it, it, wherever, as I said before, wherever there have been sort of big shady organisations where people aren't held to account and there's a lack of transparency, there's always been corruption. You can see that all over the world. It's not just the Western sort of the UK and the US. Any country in the world, the government are getting up to no good. And that's because people in general do what they can you know we all like to say look how good and wonderful we are but if we can sort of get away with things we often do as individuals we go out and if you might get away with not having to pay a certain parking ticket or you might be able to you know pull, pull the wool over a certain person's eyes we we tend to do that we are honest people 90 percent of the time but if we can get a slight advantage we do try and do that. You put a whole government together. Firstly, governments in most countries are not paid very well, so they are more open to corruption. They pro probably a lot of them do go into it with their eyes, you know, sort of be a bit naive. Uh, and then as the years go by, they realise they can't really change anything, can't do anything. They're getting older. All their friends are maybe making more money than them. And then, you know, a bit of money comes their way to just turn a blind eye to a bit of construction here and there. And that's how it starts. I just think that's humanity rather than like evil and good. I think what has changed, though, over the last few, the last decade, actually, the last few years, is that we are much more aware because that before you had these mainstream institutions that you talk about of the government and politicians and stuff. And if they did things wrong, they were um, held to account by mainstream institutions, the BBC, um, ITV, uh, CNN in America, or whatever it might be. Uh, now, 
we've seen emerging the Sean Atwood channel, the Night Tube, Andrew Gold YouTube channel. And we don't have those kinds of responsibilities. And on the one hand, it means that we might sometimes jump the gun a little bit and and speculate and not be in, as accurate as some of these mainstream people. But on the other hand, it means that we are more willing to go in and, and sort of risk our necks and expose some of these things. And I think that's what we're seeing start to happen. It's why we're losing, rightly losing trust in the institutions. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And I, I, I'm, I can't really, you know, I, I am part of this alternate media in a way, and you are as well, of course, and, and Sean, as you've mentioned. And when this all first started, when the process was democratised and we could be report, you know, we could be the people to break a story, we could cover issues and things in long form and be seen by a limitless audience that mainstream channels wouldn't dare touch or would say we're off limits and things like that. And I thought this was a great thing. It does appear a little bit to have turned into the Wild West now where... Somebody could wake up one morning and fall into a, a groove and that's the only source of information they're getting now. And that's how you get your your flat earthers and your conspiracists and things like that. And I, I'm just wondering if, if this whole Wild West, you know, free to do whatever you want thing, has this actually had a, a net positive or a net negative when you look at some of the growing communities of, uh, you know, certain conspiracies, uh, flat earthers, things like that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because obviously, I mean, you'll remember it being significantly older than I am, but the dawn of the internet, it was so big and exciting, wasn't it? Everyone was so positive, like, oh, finally, the fact checkers will be there and nobody can just have mad uh, extreme religious ideas or or bigoted views because everything will just be proven and online yeah. and there for us. And it didn't work out that way. It went the other way. Um and that's difficult. And, you know, people say, oh, it was back better back then. I think, look, in many respects, we're much better informed than we were. We can look at some positives. I think it's very human to look back and say things were better before. That's just nostalgia and how it works. Um, but I think things are pretty great today in terms of just the access we have to news. Uh, but as you say, you know, this, this idea of people just being in an echo chamber is, is a problem. And it's a problem that I remember there was sort of a, uh, a fashion maybe a couple of years ago for su suggesting that wasn't true about the echo chambers. People were coming out and saying, ah, that's not true. Actually, a lot of sort of far left people are, are digesting a lot of far right news and vice versa. But I think it turned out that that was only happening because they were retweeting it as examples of awful things. They weren't uh, really taking yeah. those ideas seriously. So people do stay in their echo chambers. We don't like to be shown that we're wrong and we make our views into our identity, I think. And as soon as you make anything into your identity, uh, it's, it's untouchable. You know, my dad came to stay at ours with his dog and the dog made a mess everywhere and we got a new house and it was really frustrating. But when I said to my dad, look, because me and my fiance get married next year and I said, look, we're not having the dog at the wedding. He got really upset. And it's because my dad has started to associate the dog with his identity. And he's like, the dog can't not be at the wedding. What he really means is his identity can't be, you know, my dad and the identity of my dad can't not be at the wedding. Um, but I said, the dog doesn't know what, what, what marriage is. So what do you do? <laughs> See, juggling a wedding just with families is probably stressful enough. But now you've got to factor in canines and non-human species. So uh, Mazel Tov, uh, first of all. Uh, <laughs> but you. you. know, and good luck. Uh, I'm just going to help. I'm just going to offer to take your hand now and, and wander through a minefield with me, if you wouldn't mind. And that's mm. uh, the Women's World Cup, which oh. <laughs> unfortunately, in many ways, has become a massive political 
hot topic in the UK as well. Uh, it's been massive because our lionesses, our, our fearless, amazing ladies, reached the final of the World Cup. Unfortunately, uh, lost to Spain. Now, being a big football fan yourself, well, Tottenham fan, I'm not sure it counts, but <laughs> have you been have you been dipping your your toe into the Women's World Cup this year? Yeah, yeah, I, I watched uh, a couple of the games, a few of the games. Look, the, the standard of football is horrific. It's it's terrible. Uh, it, it's it's just it's <laughs> it's just bad. And I and I'm a Tottenham fan, so I'm comparing it with watching that <laughs> rubbish the last couple of years. It's it's really bad. But the beauty of sports is, as long as you're supporting one team over the other, it doesn't matter too much. But it's not it's not as exciting. But yeah, it, it, it's not great football. Uh, but it brings the country together. And I was going I was going mad, hoping England would win. The the issue, obviously, the controversy is all around uh, the payments and stuff. How much if women should be paid as much as men and all that stuff. And it's so complicated, isn't it? Because I, I, you know, there have obviously they're, there's a wounded aspect because of decades of sexism where women were not paid as much as men that is getting this it's an emotional aspect that's being put into this um you know what what doesn't help there there are always these arguments that particularly in america like look how well years ago the american team are doing they just they should be paid better and then there were the same arguments on the other side when they did badly this year like oh they did so badly they lost in the second round or whatever it was to colombia uh so they shouldn't be paid equally like the idea that that the american women's team should be paid as much as men based on how they perform against other women from both sides that's what i'm hearing all the time and it's nonsense because if yeah. they're winning everything it just shows how bad the rest is or if they're losing everything well perhaps the standards even better than we thought i think an aspect that's often forgotten particularly outside of america is to be a men's footballer professional football or soccer player you've got a, pretty much everyone i've ever met who's a man in England and other countries like it around the world uh, plays football to some level. Um, I don't know one single woman who has ever played football in my life. And and by the, I'm sure there are loads of them who are going, what do you mean I've kicked the ball around? Okay, I might have forgotten one or two. But none of them who go to the games, who watch TV, that I know in my personal life. That might be because I don't know any women. But <laughs> the point is, you're, you're competing with a far smaller pool. So it doesn't matter that men's football is better or worse than women's football. None of that really matters. The point is to be a Premier League footballer as a man, you've got to be one of the best 100 or so players out of about 2 billion. To yeah. be to make it professional, if you've got a daughter who's good at football, soccer, and you're outside the States where it's very competitive there, I would She's in the team. go for, playing for England tomorrow. <laughs> I would say push them because they've got a chance. A friend of mine was saying that about cricket. He, you know, cricket for the men's, is a similar thing. There aren't that many people who play cricket. So he was saying that he's just had a son. He said, you know what? There are so few people who actually play cricket seriously that my son, if he actually has a realistic chance if he takes up cricket and gets into it. I, I would say it's the same if you have a, a young daughter who's really passionate about football or soccer, they have a chance of, of actually making it. Whereas in, in men's football, you'd go, yeah, all right, mate, pull the other one. Yeah, even, even some exceptional people that we we played football with at college level or whatever w won't make it into a, a non-league team starting lineup no. because that's the that's the level of, of competition but uh, what what frustrates me a little bit so i i did have the mentality of comparing it to the men's game every time i watched it uh, and it was very yeah. frustrating 
uh, you know, a combination of anger and laughter, depending on what was happening on the on the pitch. Sure. So then I tried to get myself into this mentality of, well, keep it separate from that, try and appreciate for what is, revise your expectations and you'll enjoy it more. And uh, to an extent, that is true. And it's something I've got to train myself on to do. However, every two minutes as I'm trying to do that, there's a new story or, or somebody who's yeah. a proponent of the women's game rubbing it in the face of men for some reason, which makes the whole thing untenable then, doesn't it? Yeah, that I find the same thing. It's like I'm desperate. 90% of me is desperate for them to win. And that other 10% is like, oh, we're going to get a lecture tomorrow about how they should be paid better. And and you just think, but but again, that doesn't make sense because it, all it would mean is that then the Spanish team, because they lost, should get paid less. If yeah. England winning means they should be paid more, then Spain losing means they should get paid less. So it is a really complicated one. You know, I, I, and, and, and most women that I've met, you know, in real life who aren't just like talking heads on TV agree that it's absurd for women to be paid the same as men or and you you get do get people going on tv just getting picking numbers out of their heads about you know oh there's a there's an a billion a billion dollar market out there for women's football well that that doesn't happen until those women who are talking about it go and watch it because they're not watching the game and no. that's that's what you you get these games at like Tottenham Stadium, which is a sixty thousand capacity, and it's like a, a few thousand go for the women's game, sometimes much less when when it's at that stadium. So it's not like tennis, you know, where where people do go and watch Serena Williams and all that play, and and the the, the gap isn't as large there. But again, the gap between men and women shouldn't really matter. Like I say, as long as you're playing against people who are roughly the same as you, you can still have a good match. So, yeah, I don't know. It is it is a tricky one, and I like this is a great point because if you look out at the crowd at any you know female football game, it's predominantly men that seems to be buying the tickets. So we we can't be blamed for that, obviously. Yeah. Um, where are you then? Let's just let's. I'm just going to keep walking you through that minefield. Uh, there's been a lot said about uh, transgender athletes and sports in the UK. A lot of the sporting bodies have rolled back uh, a lot of their their rules about. Uh, transgender people competing in you know female sports if they're male to female trans and, and vice versa it was this was this a stupid experiment from the get-go or was it a case that we just needed to learn a bit more before we uh, we came down on a decision it's a difficult one like one of my most popular episodes uh, or videos or whatever on youtube is, is my interview with richard dawkins uh and he mentioned some of this stuff as well and he just talked about it and the comment section was just filled with people saying that Richard Dawkins obviously doesn't know that much about biology, which is just a mad thing to say about the world's most preeminent biologist. So then you get into this crazy sort of conversation where people are going, nobody's actually saying it's literally their sex is female. You know, no one's saying that. Apparently no one's saying that. But if the sex and the genitals aren't important, then why are you getting operations to change them? Yeah, there, there's this attempt to separate the two, and again, you don't play. Uh, the sports aren't segregated between men and men and women because of some uh, mysterious quasi-religious concept of gender. Uh, they are separated because of the physical differences. I, I believe that if there was proof, and maybe there is, because I, I think you know there are a lot of things that I don't know about. So I don't want to sit here and go, "There's no such thing as gender. There's no such thing as men." Maybe that's a thing, right? That's just for the sake of argument. Well, if that is true, I would still rather, and I think most people would, that the ones with the men's bodies and the ones with the women's bodies be separated, even if that means that trans people have to be in not exactly the right league. If a woman comes out and says she is a trans man but was born a woman. I think most people would be perfectly happy for them to continue playing in the women's one, which they tend to do anyway. 
So I don't know. It, it's it's funny. I, I suppose one of the giveaways for all this is there are actually a number of tra trans men who compete professionally in various sports and they're given the option as to whether they want to compete with the men or the women. And they just say, nah, I'll, I'll stick with the women. Thanks. It's, it's all the same. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that really does tell you a lot of what you need to know. Uh, but it is, yeah. it's very interesting to see uh, a bit more common sense being injected into it. And we obviously want it to be science driven. We obviously want an element of, of compassion as well. I suppose maybe a, a third separate category might be the way to go. If you can, you can get enough people to compete in that. Yeah, I think, I think so. It's, it's a strange thing. And I think um, this is something, again, I'm just going to just thinking psychologically, there are different kinds of people in the world. There are people who want society to change around them. And there are people who try to change for society. And then there are people in between. And sometimes people are right to want society to, to change, right? Like the suffragettes were obviously right looking back to want society to change. They weren't even allowed to vote. But then there are other things like I'm quite tall. I'm six foot four. And I was very tall when I was 13. I was like six foot already. And when I go to concerts, music concerts and things, I always sort of feel really awkward. There are people behind me. They can't see. So I sort of slink to the back. I get because I don't need the world to change for me. I'll change for it a little bit because I feel a bit awkward and whatever. I can understand to an extent being trans and feel, OK, I'm a woman or whatever. But I would feel again like I'm this great hulking bloke. And I would feel like playing football in the women's team, I'd be so embarrassed. I'd mm. be so ashamed of that feeling. Why don't some of the... I, that's where my head is at. It's like, why, why aren't you thinking, oh, this is a bit awkward. I do love swimming, but maybe I'll just stay in the one I was in. I, again, I, I'm sure they can argue, yeah, but if I stay in the one I'm in, that's not my thing. You know, I get that as well, but... Yeah, you know. It's, a, it's an interesting point and one we're going to have to end on, unfortunately, Andrew. But this has been a pleasure. Again, I do like our little therapy sessions. Long may it continue. <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug or point people towards before I let you get back to your evening? Yes. Um, my, my YouTube, Colts and things, you guys know it. It's just called Andrew Gold. And, and I've just started a locals, andrewgold.locals.com. Most stuff will be free, but it's all the, the swearing and stuff will be, will be on, those, on those bits. So come find me there. Wonderful. Cheers, Andrew. Speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. Speak soon. Take care. Thank God he's gone. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why they keep bringing him back. I'll be honest with you. You can find his uh, various bits and bobs in the uh, comments. I wouldn't bother myself, but uh, whatever floats your boat. Uh, we're going to bring in our next uh, next guest um, into the studio to talk everything Royals. Norman, welcome back. How are you doing? Oh, all right. Thank you very much. Yeah, good. Excellent. So uh, you are our, our, our chief royal correspondent here on, on Outwood Unleashed. And uh, I suppose the first thing to ask is that I spoke to you a while back, just I think not long after Charles's coronation. And I was, we were, was kind of wondering how he can possibly do that role, given all we know about his political views that he's he's been open about previously. And I was wondering how you feel he's done so far in, in separating that. Do you think he's kept a, a low profile politically, or do you think he maybe has leaned on his, his, his gained power as king? Well, he always said that he would uh, act differently as king from how he did as Prince of Wales. You can't wipe out history, and you can't wipe out the things he said over decades when he was Prince of Wales, and his views on everything from architects to GM crops are are known. Um, since he's been king, well, he's clearly been pushing climate change a bit um, further than the government's done. Um, and as with many things with Charles, I agree with what he says. I disagree with his right to say it. Um, it's the opposite of Voltaire. Um, <laughs> but he's been, he's been more restrained uh, than, than he was before. But 
obviously he has the right constitutionally to be consulted and to advise uh, the, the Prime Minister. That's his constitutional right. And no doubt he's exercising that, though I doubt the Prime Minister wants to hear very much of what you're saying. What do you think the role is of a king then in, in 2023? What 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 could they possibly have to offer? I mean, many people are aware that it's undemocratic. We we don't we're not used to the king ruling in that in the true sense of the word uh, anymore. What what is that role even for in in 2023? Well, you know the the the, the other monarchies in Europe have have changed with the times. I mean, a lot of them have gone, of course. Uh, the Germans, the Austrians, the French, the Russians, and so on. They've all lost their monarchies. Um, those that remain have become much more modern. Um, there are very few of them around in terms of the, the families. Um, very few people supported from the public purse in Belgium and Netherlands and Sweden, in Norway. Um, they're much more integrated into society. You'll see them out shopping in normal shops. They behave in many ways like normal people and they cost a lot less. It's worth remembering that our royal family costs more than every other European country, every other European monarchy put together. That's how expensive they are. And our monarchy hasn't changed. So when you say what's the role of the monarchy, the role of the monarchy could be a unifying force. It could be just someone who is there to cut ribbons, as we like, and to, to make them to non-political but unifying statements on particular occasions. And I guess they do that to some extent. But our monarchy still has this sense of arrogance, of entitlement, uh, of right, um, which I don't think the other European monarchies do. And we've seen that. Perhaps you'll come on to this, Stephen, but you'll come on to this with um, the issue of um, Michael Fawcett's letter. Uh, I just think that there is an arrogance about these uh, members of the royal family in this country that is deeply unhelpful to, to Britain. And as old Britain's moved on, really, from the days of empire, in many, many ways, the royal family hasn't moved on. It's still basically where it was. It still is a country where we are subjects of them, um, whereas every other European monarchy, the monarchs take oaths of allegiance to democracy. And if you saw the king's coronation, did you hear the word democracy anywhere or the word vote? Because I didn't. Uh, the only pledge he made was to the Church of England. Nothing about the, nothing about democracy. We'd have to take an oath to him. If if in Parliament, this is a hypothetical situation, if one political party, Labour Party or Lib Dems or someone, stood on the platform of abolishing the monarchy and they secured a majority of seats in order to take forward their mandate, they would all have to individually take an oath of allegiance to the king before they could take their seats and abolish it. This is the nonsense we're in in this country. Talking of nonsense in this country, then, and, and back to the coronation, how, how concerning was it for you to see the police respond to hecklers, protesters, things like that? It seemed like the entire concept of peaceful protest was suspended yes. for that day, which is, for me, uh, regardless of your, your opinions on royals, if you can't protest the coronation of a, an unelected you know, member of the monarchy, I'm not sure what you can protest. No, Stephen, I totally agree with you. And, and uh, I know people who are in involved in the demonstrations from the group republic and i know that they were entirely peaceful um they were not they didn't come with any weapons or anything else they had informed the police a long time beforehand what they wanted to do and secured clearance from the police and what the police did in the day was tear up the agreement that existed and behave in a totally different way towards those peaceful protesters and i do frankly worry that in this country we're moving towards a situation 
uh, aided, I might say, by one of the most illiberal Home Secretaries ever, Sarah Braverman, where people are not allowed to protest peacefully about anything very much if the government doesn't like it. And, you know, we'll be in a situation in due course where you can protest if you're in a corner somewhere 15 miles away and no one's looking. Um, and that's not what protest is about. Um, you know, Andrew a moment ago mentioned the suffragettes. You know, without without President Home Secretary, you know, that they wouldn't have got as far as they got. Uh, we really wouldn't have done. We have to have the right to peaceful protest in this country. It's an essential part of democracy. We have to have an independent judiciary, uh, unpar un unaffected by politics. We need a proper voting system. Uh, we need rules and regulations in the written constitution, which we don't have. Our unwritten constitution is not worth the paper is not written on. Uh, it can be torn up by other government at any particular time. And we need, we need the ability to have free speech. We need the ability for people to say what they want and then be judged in the court of public opinion. Uh, I remember years ago, so I'm going on a bit, but I remember Nick Griffin, the ghastly man who was head of the BNP. Um, he was put on question time. And there were all sorts of people saying, this is disgraceful. He should be on, he's on question time. No, it wasn't a disgrace because he was exposed to other panel members and to the audience. And he was destroyed in that hour because his arguments were just completely wiped out by the population of that of that panel and by the audience themselves. So let's have free speech in this country and let public opinion be the judge of it. I agree. If I remember correctly, I think Nick Griffin basically just outed some some form of Holocaust denial, which was, you know, laughable and, and egregious in equal measures. And that, that was pretty much the end of him. Um, I suppose then... I mean, the royal family, I would have imagined throughout the ages, not even don't even need to imagine, it's well documented that there has been infighting within the family and things like that. But there's a new level added in this current era of the internet and social media and the fact that Meghan and Harry are, are kind of celebrities in their own right now. These, they, You know, they have access to these huge platforms to talk about uh, their experience. How much of a headache is that for the royal family who historically would have probably been able to control a lot of this or certainly yes. keep it uh, under the under the hood? They would have controlled it a lot more. The royal family's never liked powerful women uh, and Meghan is a powerful woman. She's not stupid. Um, Diana was a powerful woman and she was ostracised as well. Um, even people like Fergie have not been treated very well. You know, royal family is very old-fashioned and very conservative, and its view of women is it should be seen and not heard. Um, Diana was told to say nothing when she was out with Charles, just to simper sympathetically when he was doing something. So they, that's another example of how the royal family has not moved on. But yes, we've now got the dirty linen being washed in public. My view is if people want to leave the royal family, they can they can do so. Why shouldn't they do so? There shouldn't be a life sentence cast upon them. If Harry and Meghan want to do something else, that's fine. But if they want to do something else, they can't hang on to their titles of HRH, His Royal Highness. They could abandon that. And, you know, there's an element of that already in the royal family because Princess Anne, um, her children have not got the HRH title because she wanted them to be normal, have a normal life. They weren't going to succeed to the throne, let them lead a normal life. And that's exactly right. Andrew did that and insisted his children, his girls, had HRH titles. You know, we have to get over all this nonsense about titles and privileges and all that sort of stuff. It's all just ancient history, or it should be ancient history. If you want a monarchy in this country, then what you need is a head of state, a partner, um, and the immediate heir to the throne, and his or her partner. That's it. 
nothing else. And the rest of them should go and get a decent job. <laughs> how, how do you feel that maybe there's a little bit of a resurgence of this traditionalist mindset, uh, you know, a bit of national populism creeping back into the British mindset? Now, it feels like to me a while back we were sort of at a place where you could probably have a serious conversation about abolishing the monarchy. And now there seems to be more of a resurgence of this the defense of it, certainly among yes. younger people as well. Do you, do you think that's a reaction to anything? Well, I think young people in, in polling are, are more uh, in favor of a republic than older people. But I mean, look, I mean, we've had a situation where the top echelons of society, I'm talking about those who control society, not there by merit, um, have been very keen to promote the royal family. Um, can you find a criticism of William and Kate in the papers? No, you won't find it. There's plenty of stories about them, by the way, which haven't made the papers. Um, and they are treated very differently to how Harry and Meghan are treated. You know, I write for the papers, and I've written raw stories for a number of new, a number of uh, newspapers. And, you know, one or two of them have said to me, you know, you can have, we know you're we know you're critical of the royal family. You can say what you want, but keep off William and Kate. That's the instruction I was given when writing stories. And, and the the papers are just full of Kate because they want a royal family and they see William and Kate as the future and Charles as a sort of interregnum who will be there for very long. So, yes, uh, there is a resurgence in that sense from the top of society. I don't think it reflects all people in society. It doesn't reflect everybody on the street. It doesn't reflect people down the side streets of Brixton or Huddersfield, but it reflects a certain element of society. You know, here's an example of uh, one thing I noticed. You've got... It used to be when you when you had tube lines open in London, they were named by large geographically. You know, Northern Line went north, the Central Line went through London, the District Line went out to the suburbs. But hey, we've suddenly got the Jubilee Line, and then we got the Elizabeth Line. Why are we calling lines after members of the royal family? That never used to happen. And what use is it to anybody who knows that the Elizabeth Line tells you nothing about the line? Where does it go? Well, uh, with our previous guest, Andrew, we uh, we wandered into the tricky territory of women's football. And I suppose it ties back into the royal family in a sense that, you know, the big male uh, sporting competitions, there'd always be a royal presence there, especially as they got closer to a final or a potential cup. That was a big debate in the women's game because that wasn't the case. It didn't seem to be, there was no royal presence there for the women in, in the final. Yeah. Is this is this significant in any way to you? So this, this is an example, as I understand it, of another ludicrous royal rule going back centuries, which is that Australia is part of the Commonwealth and therefore still has um, the king or queen here as head of state. Why, by the way, they haven't ditched them, I don't know, because why they want a, a monarch from the other half of the world, I have no idea. But anyway, they haven't ditched us. So we've still got the king and queen um, in, uh, as head of state in Australia. And the royal protocol, going back centuries, is that um, the first royal to uh, to visit uh, the, the, the territory should be the monarch. Charles has come to the throne. He hasn't visited Australia as monarch, and therefore William couldn't go. And that's a ludicrous rule we have, and that's probably why he didn't go. So Okay, so, it, I mean, you'd be tempted to say it's somewhat of a cop-out, but if anyone's going to hold to ancient rules and customs, it's going to be the royal family, isn't it? Yes, but I mean, it should be all swept aside. You know, we don't need, you know, people doing swan upping in the Thames or keeping <laughs> a bathroom or silver stick and waiting. All these people, who are these people? You know, why are we paying for all these people? Isn't that part of the problem, though, if they start deviating too far away from what we recognise as this prestigious, antiquated system? They'll cease to be relevant 
at all? Isn't it a case of all or nothing with the royal family, just in terms of their own survival? I don't think so. I mean, they may think that. They may think that the dam will break if they give away on some things. I don't think it will. And I think if you look at what how the monarchies in Holland and Belgium and Norway and Denmark and Sweden have changed, you know, over the years, over the last hundred years, they have moved from the kind of monarchy we have now to something much more modern, to something much more in tune with democracy and modern society. Ours hasn't done that. It could have done it. Well, uh, swinging back around to something you mentioned at the start of the conversation, and that's the controversy surrounding Michael Fawcett's letter. Maybe you can just explain who Michael Fawcett is and, and what, what the controversy is. Michael Fawcett is, um, let me put it this way, an extremely close confidant uh, and associate of Prince Charles, uh, of King Charles now. Charles once said that he could live without anybody in his life apart from Michael Fawcett. Uh, presumably he meant he could live without Diana and uh, Camilla as well, but Michael Fawcett was different. So Michael Fawcett has been very closely associated with Charles for many years. Uh, he's an interesting character. He's had to resign three times now. Uh, he's been brought back twice so far when no one was looking um, by Charles. And I imagine he'll come back a third time. Now the police are taking no action on this letter. So he is he is that kind of very close servant and confidant uh, of uh, of Charles. Let's put it no stronger than that. Uh, and what he did, what he has been doing, has been Charles's fixer. Now, Charles has demonstrated over the years a willingness to accept money from anybody and everybody for his good causes, not for himself, to be fair, but for his good causes, without asking too many questions as to where it came from. And he has demonstrated a very bad sense of personal judgment because some of the people he's been associated with have been crooks. Um, uh, the guy from Enron, for example, in, in the States, uh, or indeed I might say Jimmy Savile, who advised <laughs> Charles and Diana and advised Charles and Camilla on their wedding. I mean, what Jimmy Savile knew about it. They used to knows. practically be pen pals, didn't they, for a long they time? They were. Uh, and, and Charles sent them presents. And, and uh, when Savile died, Charles led the tributes to Jimmy Savile back oh, in those God. days, about 2012, 2013. So he's got a very poor sense of judgment. But if people give him money, he would accept it. Now, we've seen a situation here where a letter was written by Michael Fawcett. Charles says he knows nothing about it. I find it hard to believe. I don't think Michael Fawcett would, A, do things without Charles knowing, uh, and of this nature. And secondly, um, Fawcett's in a position to promise nothing. Charles can promise things, Fawcett can't. Now, what this letter did, sent to Mahfouz bin Mahfouz, uh, was that um, basically he said uh, in black and white in the letter, uh, if you give some more money for Charles and good causes, we will help you with your citizenship application and with moving up to moving up your honours list, uh, the honours ladder. And he already had a CBE given in a private ceremony, by the way. Why was it private? We don't know, but I can only assume we need more people to find out. Given a CBE in a private ceremony at Buckingham Palace, and he gave money to causes. And there was a direct link in that letter sent by Michael Fawcett to him to suggest that the that, um, money given to Charles's good causes would result in help as a ship and an honour. And that is, in my view, a direct... Uh, offence under the Honours Brackets Prevention of Abuses of Closed Brackets Act 1925, which expressly prohibits that linkage. And I think the suggestion of citizenship is one that uh, implies corruption 
under the Bribery Act 2010. Um, and I might just say, just for interest, by the way, um, that uh, back in about 2002, uh, when I found out through a parliamentary written question, I put down that Peter Mandelson had solicited help for his good causes at the Millennium Dome uh, from uh, certain other people who were the Hinduja brothers who wanted to help with their citizenship applications, exactly the same link as, uh, as Michael Forsett made, Mandelson had to resign as a consequence of me exposing that back in those days. Um, and on this occasion, when I saw the letter from uh, Michael Fawcett, I reported it to the police, the Metropolitan Police, and suggested an offence had been committed under the, under the Honours Act. The police then dragged their feet for several months. Uh, after being pushed, he finally said he'd look into it. Uh, after several more months, uh, they decided to refer it to the Crown Prosecution Service. Uh, they appeared to, at that point, interviewed nobody, not even spoken to anyone about it. So they took a long time to do nothing. Uh, and now, almost two years on from my complaint, they've said they don't know anything about it. Well, that letter is there in the public domain. It's there in black and white. People can read it for themselves. And I think it's a black and white open and shut case uh, whereby there was a direct linkage made. So if you can't prosecute someone on that basis, what can you prosecute them on? And the conclusion I reached, Stephen, is this is that the decision not to prosecute was not based on the merits of the case, but based on the nature of the individual's concerns. What is the public reaction to this sort of stuff? Because it seems to me like this sort of corruption, bribery, you know, favours for cash, it just seems almost commonplace in these, these areas of society to be almost be expected by the general population to the point where they, in a way, they often find stories of this nature slightly predictable and maybe a little bit boring, not perhaps as yeah. salacious and interesting as, you know, Meg Meghan and Harry and what they've been saying, you know, the celebrity title uh, kind of stories. Do you think there's a, there's a bit of empathy towards this kind of stuff? I think you're right. I think there is the, the public have become used to, to corruption or used to this sort of thing happening. You know, there's been no public outrage about the billions, billions of pounds of taxpayers' money given to friends of the Tory party for PPE equipment that didn't work. Um, no one's really bothered about these things anymore. And they've also got short attention spans. They, they move on uh, to something else. And the press move on. The journalists haven't got time to pursue matters greatly. They're going to write stories, and then they're on to the next day's stories, and there's something different. So they just so the, the combination of, oh, well, we expected it, we'll have to put up with it, plus the fact that the newspapers have moved on to something else, means that the people get away with these sorts of things now. I think Britain, I'm sorry to say, because I like my country, Britain is a more corrupt country than it was 10 years ago. It's very obvious that's the case. You mentioned something which I found really interesting at the start of the conversation about various media outlets being openly, you know, being explicit in their, their desire not to criticise Will and Kate, for instance. They decided who was off limits in the royal family. Now, is this? Do you feel this is perhaps motivated by what they think sells, what they think the public wants to hear, what will lose them readers and eyeballs, etc.? Or do you think there is some sort of pressure coming from the top, coming from the royal family, to dictate what can and can't be written? I'm not sure it comes from the royal family directly, though I'm sure there is contact between editors and members of the royal family, uh, and they make their views known. Um, and of course, the papers want exclusive pictures of the royal kids on their birthdays and things. So there's an unholy trade between the two of them. Uh, the Royal Family always says, by the way, not to exploit the children, but they do it themselves uh, every time they have a birthday or something else. It's their photos they put out. So they're allowed to put out their PR material, which oppress their users, like a PR agency, but they don't want journalists snooping around and finding stuff 
they don't want. And my book uh, and what you do is, has got a chapter on how the interlink between the inter interlinkage between the press and the royal family works in a very unhealthy way, in my view. But I think it's more than that. I think it's also that the editors of papers are by and large, we have by and large a right-wing press in this country, or even, as someone said to me the other day, not even a right-wing press anymore, a kind of UKIP press uh, in these days. And if you look at the Mail, the Telegraph, the Express, the Sun, they are committed to a royal family. Even though Murdoch, by the way, is a Republican, they're committed to this sort of conservative moulding of society which suits them because that's what they want. Um, and therefore, I think, in a way, they don't have to be told by the royal family to give them coverage. I think they do it themselves. I mean, I know we're straying out of the uh, the realm of blighty here, but given... Um... Meghan and Harry reside in the United States of America. Have you got any sort of feeling of how the American public perceive them, whether or not they're seen as uh, somewhat of a novelty, whether they're seen somewhat of a hindrance? It's, it's difficult to really gauge, I suppose. I think the, um, the American public probably likes them more than the British public does these days, which is partly because the press have created an image for them. Uh, they've helped to create it themselves to some degree. Uh, there was a South Park episode, I think, wasn't there, where uh, um, they were satirised very heavily. Um, World privacy too, I think it was called, um, demonstrating the, the hypocrisy, if you like, of Harry and Meghan, who wanted to remain private, but wanted to go around the world telling everybody they were private. Um, so I think the, the, the popularity in America has dipped, but probably not as far as it dipped in this country. I mean, what the royal family's image of in America, uh, to a large degree, remember Americans aren't great on foreign policy, um, is um, is is one where we are we're a, we're a kind of world of of a country of kind of palaces and princesses and Disney characters almost. It's you know the, the the image people have of the UK is completely out of line with what's actually happening. And uh, and actually the royal family, which we are told is a great bonus for tourism, um, is actually one which uh, keeps the image of Britain. As something, some sort of Disney image from from long time ago. It's just it's not helpful to Britain, I don't think, really. Yeah, I think I think Meghan Markle probably found that out firsthand, didn't she? She probably had this, this strange American perception of the Disney princess, and then yeah. found herself in a very you know restrictive, suffocating, uh, very uh, dusty British uh, regimented yes. uh, lifestyle. Um, how how long do you think those two? can remain relevant or earn money on the back of their their royal uh, heritage, mm -hmm. I suppose, because it seems like it's soured in a number of ways. They had that big Spotify deal, which was huge. And yes. I think even the one of the people who inked that deal or was part of Spotify when that was that was agreed has come out and said some quite critical and pointed things about them. It doesn't seem like, the, I mean, the nicest possible way, they are particularly talented in any specific way. It seems like they are living off their reputation as former royals. Well, they are, and, and that's a lot of diminishing returns, of course, because the only exclusives which they've got uh, relate to when they were inside the tent. And the longer it goes on, the further away the tent is and the further away in time it is. And therefore, the material they can draw on, uh, it dries up. Uh, they've used it largely in interviews with Oprah Winfrey or in that book of Harry's called Spare. Um, it's been done. Now, what else can they say? Because they're not, they haven't got access to anything new, and therefore it becomes less and less relevant. You know, the comparison I would make was with that um, MI5 defector, David Shaler, if you remember him. David Shaler came out 
there's all sorts of you know kind of gruesome stuff about MI5 in the first couple of weeks after he went public and resigned from the security services. Well, you know, five years on, what do you what had he got to say? I mean, he said it, and he got no access to anything new. He'd been cut out of the loop. So, you know, the, 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 it's a law of diminishing returns. They have to do something else. I mean, my, my advice to them is just to go and have a nice life and forget about the royal family and not try to exploit it because just go and do something else. They've got plenty of money. Go and, go and spend it and enjoy themselves. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking in terms of the relationship between the media and the royal family, and I suppose, you know, to a certain extent, it seems like footballers are probably more held to account by the media than perhaps the royal family are and politicians to a, to a large extent are expected to engage with the media and answer questions and this is this is bolted in as, as a schedule it, I, I don't know I suppose there's anything like that with the royals could the royals if they wanted just decide on a complete media blackout for the foreseeable yes. future well the, the royals they, they know the media wants coverage uh, of the royal family because it sells papers and therefore they did take the terms they say, we'll, we'll answer these particular questions or we'll, we'll have this particular shot or we'll use these particular photographs. And they control everything in a far more detailed way than politicians would ever get away with. Um, and that's unhealthy. So the image that the public gets to the royal family is, is an artificial one and generally one which is much more sympathetic to the royal family than perhaps they deserve. And when, again, this is my book, but when... Um, um, the the the, uh, the veil slips, and they see something. The public sees something which the royal family doesn't want to see. Then you know that that is something which they object to. And um, there was a case when, which I've taken in my book, when um, there was a, a a member of the public out in near Sandringham on a public footpath, um, who then took a photograph of Charles shooting, because let's remember that the royal family goes out shooting and hunting animals uh, quite a lot, um, not not just in this country, but elsewhere. Um, and that is not an image which they want people to see. They don't want to see the fact that, um, you know, the royal, child, the royal children are bloodied, another old tradition, when you go out hunting, to kind of inure them to that, to that lifestyle. They don't want those photographs shown to the public. So this guy took a photograph on the, on the footpath of Charles shooting. And uh, Charles then called the police. And the police came along and said, well, we're very sorry, sir. Quite rightly, came along, very sorry, sir, but the man was in a public food party. He's committed no offence. Um, and then Charles got his lawyers involved uh, because the man was so incensed, I think, he went to the mail on Sunday and said, this has happened. So the royal lawyers, who we probably paid for by the back door, put pressure on the mail on Sunday not to run the story. And the mail on Sunday, to their credit, did run it. And the whole thing came out. But these are the lens they go to to try to make sure their image is one which is one they want to project it, uh, project it rather than necessarily the true one. All right. Well, Norman, it's been a pleasure to speak to you again. Thank you for coming on. Uh, is there anything you'd like to point people towards? Where can they find more of your writing? Where are your books available? Uh, well, there are three books of mine out. Um, this is the most relevant one to the one we've been talking about is uh, the most recent one, which is called And What Do You Do? Uh, what the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know which I'm happy to say is selling very well and changing people's minds. Uh, it's available on hardback, softback, and, uh, and an audio book as well. And then if people are deeply interested in what I've been doing, then my, my political memoir is called Against the Grain. And my earlier book, which we discussed on this, on this programme, is um, The Strange Death of David Kelly. But that's another story entirely. 
Oh, that's something I'd, I'll definitely be picking up uh, for sure. Um, Norm, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for speaking to me. Thanks, Stephen. Have a good evening. Excellent guest, Sean. He is. He's fascinating. And we did a piece on him about Dr. David Kelly. I think we put it out as a clip on the channel if people want to check it out. That's a really interesting story as well. All right. Well, uh, being the hardcore skeptic I am, I, I accept every single word of the official narrative. So uh, I'll look forward to the book to be to have my uh, mind changed on that one for sure. <laughs> right. I'm going to bring in Charlie Robinson. Thanks, Stephen. My pleasure. Cheerio. Cheers. Please support Stephen. His links are in the description box. And now. It is Charlie Robinson returning to the screen. I <laughs> do, my friend. I'm good. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, just having fun over here. Um, my partner's baby's due at any moment. So if I rush off camera, that means her waters are broke. <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations. Whenever oh, this you. happens, it's going to be a big. Yeah, he's holding on. He's, he's holding on to the womb. He's been we've been trying to get him out for a few days now, but he's Listen, he likes man, it, I man. don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> Given this, how crazy this world is, man, oh. it's tough to want to come into it. We've got a a serial killer of babies just got convicted here. A nurse, it was I it's, saw that. It's rocked the nation absolutely. Yeah, but Ash said that you were looking at the situation in Maui. I was just there a couple months ago. Yeah, it was, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's my favorite place on the planet. Always has been. As a kid, we went there um, on vacations. Uh, being Growing up in Southern California, Hawaii is the place, if you can swing it, you go there. And we've, we've found reasons to, to go. And I've spent a lot of time in Maui in general, and or uh, Hawaii in general, and Maui in particular, and I love it. And And we were just there and, in Lahaina, you know, as you do, go to dinner there, but also leaving from the, the harbor in, in Lahaina is where all the boats go from. So if you're going to go on an excursion, you're going to go down there. So that's that's what we've been doing. It's frustrating. Right, I, it, it breaks my heart to see it. All right, viewers, I will pull up the latest on the Maui fires in a moment, but we are with Charlie Robinson. And for viewers who are not familiar with work, Charlie, you want to let them know what you're sure. about? I wrote a, a couple books. First book being The Octopus of Global Control. That came out in 2017. Went out on, on, the, on the streets to promote it and because nobody knew who I was. And from doing that, that turned into uh, someone said, you should do a podcast. And that turned into the Macroaggressions podcast. And it's been, it's been that from there on. Written a couple more books still do the podcast love it and uh i'll be speaking in new york city if anybody's going to be in new york city uh september 9th saturday the weekend of 9 11 there's going to be an event that we're doing there so if people are interested they can go to eventbrite.com and search free world nyc if you're going to be there if you're in the area there's a there's like seven of us that are speaking at this event all day richard gage will be there as well he's talking we're gonna we're gonna get to the bottom of 9 11 22 years after the fact i guess i don't know it's so frustrating you get the you get a very kennedy feel from from that like like you can envision 60 years going by and them saying well we can't release the documents because you know so that's that's what we're frustrated in in, in hoping doesn't happen so we're we're gonna be out there 
if people are interested in joining us, we'd love to have you. And Charlie's links are in the description box below this video if you want to support his work. So the latest headline that we've got here in the UK, fire experts warn Maui fire victims may never be identified because heat destroyed the DNA as FBI collects just 104 samples from relatives of 1,100 missing. Wow, and first tourist victim is identified. 1,100, oh my goodness, that must classify this as one of the all-time disasters in the US, does it? Yeah, yeah, natural disasters, yeah. it's. I think it's top three right now. By the time it all gets sorted out, it'll be... It might be the number one. This is the, that area, Lahaina, for those that have never been there. The street that runs along the ocean in Lahaina is called Front Street. And that's where you get the restaurants and the bars and the art galleries and the shave ice places and all, all the tourists and, you know, buy your t-shirts and stuff like that. All that is along Front Street. And that's along the ocean. And then there's the Lahaina Harbor there. But if you go inland, just two blocks it's where all the, the people that live there, you know, the people, all the locals of Maui, they live there. It's not, that's not a touristy, the, it, it's a retail tourist destination, but the, it's not like Hotel Row or anything like that. That's Kanapali Beach. That's, that's 10 miles north. But, but the area where, where they got hit the hardest, even though there is a retail touristy component to it, it's not an overnight tourist place. That's not where you would stay. Like at 10 o'clock at night, Lahaina's dead. You know what I mean? Like there might be a bar open, but but it's not. But the people that really live there and work on the island, they live right behind there. They live in that area. And if you've gone like we were in October and you go, you know, we left on a boat that that, that took off from that that harbor in Lahaina, you, you've got to park in these, like designated little parking areas that are kind of, you know, in, in between houses. And it's, and so you get a chance, you know, you park your car and then you've got to walk through the residential area to get there. So, I, I mean, I, I've, I've been there a dozen times, of course, but I, I'd never really examined, like really explored too much of the residential side, but we did that the last time we were there, we were kind of forced to due to the parking situation. So I remember walking by a school and thinking, how impossible it would be to sit in that classroom as a kid learning algebra when you've got like a great surf spot right outside your window. You know what I mean? Like it's right there. And it, and it said on that school established 1906, you know, so this is a place that, that has a lot of cultural significance for the Hawaiian people. It, it has been there forever, like over, well over a hundred years, this little town had been there. There's a place, there's a banyan tree that is so, it's the largest banyan tree in the world that is right there in Lahaina. It's so big. It takes up like an entire block. If you look at the satellite footage, you can see that it made it, it made it somehow. It looks a little charred, but it looks like it made it. It is, this is a catastrophe for the people. And I'll tell you, Sean, like based on the books I read, I write and read, um, I don't want to put my tinfoil hat on with this one. I really don't. Um, but boy, they're making it hard. You know, they're making it really hard. They're acting in a way that is inconsistent with reality. They're 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 not answering questions of people. I watched a, a video of the police chief getting or the 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 mayor of Maui getting chewed out by a media guy. I don't even know if he was media. He was the guy who was recording it and he was asking questions in the the 
mayor wouldn't answer. I watched the police chief get chased out. I watched I've, this it, again. It doesn't that doesn't mean anything in and of itself, but it's just an it's incompatible with reality with how you would behave in a situation like this, unless you're trying to hide something. And and I would think they're they're trying to hide something. I don't know if it's um, the reasoning behind the alarm, the alert system not being activated, because that was that was a problem. You know, if you remember a couple years ago, it went off when there wasn't a problem and, and said that there was like nuclear missiles inbound from North Korea. And I remember that there, the people that heard that were so freaked out that they were getting in storm drains, like lifting up manhole covers and getting in storm drains because they didn't know where else to go. Like, so it worked then. Doesn't work now. Doesn't work when you really need it. Water gets turned off again. Why? Maybe there's a perfectly logical explanation for this. But we're asking the questions or the people there or the locals are asking the question. They're not getting any answers. And so, again, if there is a logical answer, if there is a non nefarious reason for this tell us we'd love to hear it it's it in fact you better because if you don't people are going to start to jump to conclusions and if you want this thing to get out of control then then say nothing because it's headed that way we're talking about directly we're talking about 15 minute cities we're talking about we're talking about all kinds of things because you guys are refusing to answer basic questions. So again, th this is incompatible with how you would behave. And, and, and again, I, I get creeped out when I see, when I see people that magically rotate into a scenario like this, like the incident commander for the Las Vegas shooting. Now all of a sudden shows up and he's in charge in Maui and you go, mm -mm, I don't like this again fighting the urge to put on my tinfoil hat, but stop making me, stop making me want to, stop making me have to dig into this. I would love to say, you know, I'd love to believe in my heart that this was uh, a, a, some sort of natural disaster. I mean, it's terrible either way. It's not going to make it any better, I suppose, but maybe a little bit better, but I'd love for it to just be a natural disaster things or a power line that actually went down and, and, and accidentally started. I don't know. I, the idea that it was in, made to happen makes my blood boil. So I don't want to go down that path, but, um, but, but, you know, there's a, there's a line in the, um, in the movie, the firm that I, I I've been thinking about a lot lately and Tom Cruise is in that movie and he's he's working for a law firm and Gene Hackman is his boss and Gene Hackman runs the law firm. And then there's a guy who's the head of security, who's Wilford Brimley, the old oatmeal guy. Right. He's he's in the corner and 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 he's coming. He's asking he's getting agitated in this one scene. And the, the guy who runs the law firm turns to him and goes, what is your problem? Like, why don't you just calm down? What is your problem? And his response was because he was the security guy. The head of the security for the firm was he said, I get paid to be suspicious when I've got nothing to be suspicious about. And, and, and that's what I think about with regard to this, this fire is that my job as somebody that writes the book is to be suspicious about this, but I don't want to be because of my emotional attachment to this geographic region. I mean, Sean, in my will, my will has, has it, 
spe- spelled out that 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 when I die, my ashes are to be scattered off the coast of Maui in a boat that leaves from Lahaina Harbor. You know what I mean? And like it, this is this place has always been important to me. I don't live there. I've never lived there. But when things go south in my life and I need to clear my head and that's where I go. And that's where I've, we've always gone. My family, we've always gone there and I love it. And I, and I'm sick for the people and there's such great people there. And, and, and I, and I, if there's anything worse than this thing happening, it's people getting, if it's people getting away with it, I guess, if, if they were in, in fact involved in it. So it's early. There's a lot to know. There's a lot we don't know. But uh, that's kind of where I am. Yeah, there was a huge fire in Arizona that destroyed a lot of homes. And I ended up neighbors with the guy that they'd alleged started it, the feds. And he was a Native American fireman. And they said that he did it to create work for himself. But when I actually spoke to him, that was the news headline. But when I actually spoke to him, he was a victim of fetal alcohol syndrome and was seriously mentally ill mm. an easy person that, that they could have uh, made a patsy so anyway you've got you've had several questions come in and the first one which is a good way to start it is from jane m and she said why did it start was it wildfires it, the official story is that it was a downed power line that was amplified by winds that were unpredictable due to a hurricane that was south of Hawaii by several hundred miles. That I don't, I don't know. So I know what they're talking about. I know the area where the the power lines are and there's nothing under there, obviously um, except brush that allegedly was supposed to have been maintained by the federal government and wasn't of course. And, and so the, the, the official story is that the power line went down, sparked a fire, winds amplified it. They called it off. They said at like one o'clock in the afternoon, it was fine. It was contained, but it wasn't. It came back. And that's why there were so many children that were wound up being left there was that parents go to work, got to leave the kids at home, but fire's under control. They were told the fire's under control. It's been contained. And so they go off to work only to find out that it's not under control and then they're not allowed back in. So the, the children that died there died by themselves. So it's horrors on top of horrors in this scenario. And it's going to, I'll tell you what, they better hope that it was that that's how it started. Because if they find out that, that, that the government was involved or that there was directed energy being used, I'm not saying that there was, but if they fi- discover that, good luck. Good luck trying to control the Hawaiian people who already have a very uncomfortable relationship with the United States. Let's be honest here. I mean, it wasn't exactly their idea to, to, to be part of this. I did an episode about this uh, called The Dark History of the of the Aloha state a couple of years ago where I talked to a, a local guy, the, the guy that created my logo. He's a, he's a native Hawaiian, like nine generations there. And we talked about, about the way Hawaii came to become a United States territory and then later a state. And, and it was, uh, well, it's how you would imagine. Not good. Never good. Yeah. I've looked at the history of how Mexico, um, 
they used to own a lot of land, didn't they? And how that land was taken <laughs> yeah, from them. California, Arizona. Yeah. Um, so let me just read for the viewers then. Here's what the official explanation is. Several wildfires erupted across Maui as Hurricane Dora passed south of the Hawaiian Islands. The biggest contributing factor to the fires is conditions created by Hurricane Dora, including strong hot winds. Hawaii experienced drought during the first week in August 23, potentially creating a drier environment in which it would be easier for wildfires to start. The cause of the fires is unknown, but natural causes include lightning and volcanic activity. So that's what the uh, mainstream are saying. All right, let's see. Volcanic activity. There are no active volcanoes on Maui. That's on the big island. Sorry. Let's see what the next question is. Um, a Nexus has said, is BlackRock making moves there already? I wouldn't be surprised. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's uh, some kind of financial benefits situation going on. Yeah. Um, Fred, how was bad was Pearl Harbor compared to this? I don't know how many people died at Pearl Harbor. Do you? Um, about three thousand. About the same as nine eleven. I think about three thousand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. For those that are unfamiliar, that's on that's in Hawaii, but a different island. Um, so is this this is just relentless? Then it can't be stopped. Is it still going? No, I think it's. I think it. There, it's out. I mean, listen. The, the the only reason why it ended in Lahaina was because it got to the water. Right. There's nowhere else for it to go, as you saw the videos of the people jumping into the water. So it comes down. There's a there's a hill. It comes down the hill, and then you get it. Once you get into the flatter part, that's where Lahaina is, and then you get to the the ocean. And so it 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 came down this this area, and there's and there's really. There's really only one way in and out of it as well. It's like there's a the equivalent, like the Maui equivalent of Pacific Coast Highway, right? That just kind of two lanes, you know, two lanes on each side, and you know, if there's a track, if there's a wreck, you know, and you're 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 on the the airport side of of the island, and you're trying to get to the touristy side, like the Kanapali Beach side in the in the far west. Good luck if there's a if there's a problem with that street. Good luck, and that's what wound up happening too. They 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 had problems with uh, they they wouldn't let people evacuate. So there were even more questions about that. It wasn't just that there was a fire; it was the evacuation process. It's like they pretended like this was their first day on the job and they didn't know what they were doing. This is a process that you're supposed to practice. You're supposed to know how it works. I just released an episode today talking about FEMA. And and the and, and FEMA has a long track record of just oops, almost got it right, but we failed spectacularly. And so whenever FEMA's involved, it they they screw things up so much that you will eventually get to the point of asking yourself, is this intentional? Like, are you guys screwing this up on purpose? You do it so often on every event, it almost feels like it, like if you were trying to do it the exact opposite way. You couldn't do it any better. That's how FEMA operates. And the the plan that was in place for Maui was clearly not uh, not followed. And there's going to be there's going to be hell to pay. And, and and these people that are in charge of this event that are going to go Donald Rumsfeld on it and start telling you know mistakes were made. We're charting the course. For, those people need to be 
held accountable in whatever way, shape and form that is. Uh, I doubt that you're going to get this taken care of through legal remedies. So, you know, uh, I would trust that the Hawaiian people have a way of sorting this out. So we're live with Charlie Robinson. If you've got any questions, put them in the chat. First question is from Fred, and he wants to know, do you think Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, they we had inter- we had the Japanese code cracked for a long time. But and and they moved some of the better known ships off to the backside of Oahu in advance of that. Yeah, that is that is what is that so that's a that's a a, a version of a false flag in which you don't ha- you don't play the role of your enemy attacking you. You just allow your enemy to attack you so that you've got the justification to to get in you know to 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 get into the fight you've got the the reason to jump in the fight you know i was going to just stand on the sides and watch but this guy hit me sometimes it's your buddy dressed up like the bad guy who hits you and then you jump in the fight you know that's a false flag sometimes like in japan's case and with world war ii we had put an embargo on them so they weren't they didn't get any oil and they decided well if we're if they're we're going to get into a fight with these guys so if we're going to get into a fight with them we might as well hit them first um you know it didn't it didn't do it didn't have the intended effect of crippling the u.s navy it just really stirred up a hornet's nest but that was there's plenty of evidence showing that the that people had advanced knowledge of that yeah for sure getting asked about your youtube channel do you still have one what youtube channel (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i never invested too much time or energy into it because i knew i was building that foundation on quicksand but uh yeah it's gone rockfin is a good place odyssey um band.video and vigilante.tv are places where my show goes out in audio format yeah youtube hates me so what subjects, what subjects are you covering these days on your platforms? Well, I've been um, recently. I did a, an episode talking about NATO, North Atlantic terrorist organization, describing that they are the largest terrorist or organization, terrorist cell operating in the world right now, and uh, and they are, and and that's provable. And I bring all the evidence on that. Um, I, I just, Sean, I went, I was at the American Liberty Awards in Austin, Texas, uh, a week ago. There was a, there was we Alex Jones there. Alex Jones was not there. Rex Jones was there. His son, his son accepted the lifetime achievement award on behalf of his father and then did a, <laughs> a spot on impression of his dad. Like it was really <laughs> funny. Uh, it, it was a, it was a, gr- it was a great, uh, yeah, it was a great event, man. I actually, I, I have nothing but good things to say about it. So I got a chance to, to, I did go to the the river with all those guys from Infowars the following day and they were all super nice. Like we had a good, we had a good time. I, I mean, I'm definitely on some sort of federal watch list now after that, but <laughs> it happens. It happens. And did you say that you won an award? I lost an award. No, I was nominated oh. for best book. Listen to, listen, listen to this. Listen to who I was up against. I mean, there was no chance I was going to win. Um, Alex Jones himself, who wound up winning, David Icke, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Ed Dowd for his book, Whitney Webb for her books. 
was like, what am I doing in this category? Just happy to be here. Uh, Alex won for the book. I didn't, I'll be honest. I didn't know he had a book out. Um, I don't either. No. And David, David, um, D David didn't win, but I talked to him a couple days ago. I, I just recorded him for macroaggressions and I told him, I said, David, we, we, we lost to Alex Jones. He's like, look at the disappointment all over my face, you know, with a big smile. Yeah. He's cool. So, so yeah. that, so I've got David Ike coming on pretty soon. I've got Dr. Shiva coming on this Sunday. So we're talking, we're talking to people, talking to interesting people, you know, just to be nominated with all those heavyweights is quite an accomplishment, Charlie. Oh yeah, I was super flattered to be honest with you. Yeah. Next question is from Method. What does Charlie think of the RFK assassination? Oh, oh, interesting. Well, we've got big time MK Ultra connections to Sirhan Sirhan. We've got a lot of, um, you know, the 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 mainstream media driving the getaway car you know, figurative way on this one, of course, you know, he, this is what happens when you become a pain in the butt to the permanent state. They, they kill you in broad daylight and pin it on somebody else to show you that they can do it. And, and, and in fact, really the more absurd, the explanation, the better, as far as they're concerned, they want, they almost want you to go, what, you know, because if 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 you know that they're lying about these assassinations, JFK, RFK, whatever, you and you know that they're lying and they're lying, and then nothing gets done, that has a psychological impact as well. That that says says you can know all you want what we're up to. It's not going to change anything. We're not going to stop. We're never going to be held accountable. So yeah, I think RFK, senior. Um, he was whacked. Listen, he was going after the people that that were that had a had a a right to to whack him. And 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 what did we see? What an hour ago? We understand how that goes. You get on the wrong side of 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 important people and start giving them a hard time. Oh, planes blow up. Yeah, I'm surprised it took that long with what happened an hour ago. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, you get on um, an airplane next to Hillary Clinton. Are you gonna you get into a, an airplane next to anybody that's testified against the Clintons and they're like in the seat next to you? Ring the call button and ask the stewardess <laughs> politely to get off that plane and get 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 yourself rebooked on a different flight. You know what I mean? A lot of planes yeah. go missing. A lot of planes blow up. A lot of problems uh, go missing too in those planes. You better have a parachute. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So do you think that the Kennedys are going to rise up into political prominence once again with all what's been happened recently? Well, the if the media has anything to say about it, the answer is no. They really hate him. It's funny. I I talked to a family friend who is a hardcore Democrat, and I said, what do you think about RFK Jr.? And they said, he's disgusting. I was like, really? I said, he comes out of that Kennedy Kennedy clan. What is your reasoning for that? And it has to do with his um, medical beliefs. Oh, yeah. Stuff yeah. that we can't get into. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was their reasoning for not liking him. And I said, well, he's a Democrat, though. You don't think he's better than the current batch? Well, we can, no, we can't have that. So it, it, you've got so So he's radioactive for the left because he won't 
sing from the same hymn book as the rest of them. He's 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 tolerated by the right. I think he's probably as liked by more Republicans than he is liked by Democrats, which is totally weird. And um, but as far as like a resurgence of the Kennedy brand. I don't think so. I think that I think that uh, I think that they'll let him play this out for a little while. And then he'll uh, listen if he gets too popular. If he moves up too too high up the ladder there, there they'll there'll be a plane in his future as well, because they want Gavin Newsom in there from California. They want him as the Democratic guy. He's a soulless psychopath who would fit the bill and looks the part of president. And um, and and. And, and he'll he'll do whatever he'll get on board with whatever agenda they they want. He takes all his money from the Getty Oil family. So he's he's uh, and he's also, by the way, he's shown what he can do. You're talking about an agenda of destroying America. He's shown what he could do when he was the head of the board of supervisors for San Francisco for many years, destroying that city. And now he's shown what he can do as the governor of California, destroying that state, a state where I live for 35 years i watched him take that beautiful place and turn it into an open air uh burn pit it's embarrassing and it's all and 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 again california yeah yeah maybe they just got hit by the hurricane maybe they get earthquakes every now and then but for them they didn't, didn't get hit by an asteroid they got hit by governmental policies they got hit by democratic policies in particular and that's what so I don't think that RFK is going to be the establishment's option. I think they'll find a way to bring somebody else in. And I think that they, that person is Gavin Newsom, unfortunately. How on earth are they going to let Biden rerun when he just fell asleep talk, yet again, talking to the Hawaiians, didn't he? Yeah. How, how can they have him running again? It's preposterous. Of course, it's preposterous. They, they, and they'll probably engineer a health, a health issue, and he'll say, "Guys, I really wanted to run again, but I've got my doctors telling me that it's not good. And if I do that, we're over. You know, it, it, it'll be it'll be over for us." So, I, I I think that they'll find they'll set up a scenario in which he's able to step aside in terms of at least not run again. And Kamala Harris obviously is, is like a, an anchor on anybody, you know? So I, I wouldn't trust that she won't be around. She won't be around for, for much longer e either way, whether they run Biden again or they bring in a brand new person. I, I wouldn't expect to see Kamala Harris. She is, she is quite literally the dumbest person in all of politics. And, and, and everybody knows it too. She got as many delegates, as many vote delegates as uh, as I did in the last presidential election. Did you know that? We both got zero. I, at least I wasn't running, though. <laughs> so are all these indictments paving the way for Trump to come in? Or is he is it going to be overwhelming? You know, those those those. Uh, thriller movies where the bad guy you know they, the good guy's got the bad guy and he leaves him alone and he doesn't kill him and then the bad guy comes back and winds up being the bad and comes back and doing his thing in the end in this scenario trump is the bad guy right and they're in their minds trump is the bad guy so you better make sure he's dead in a f figurative sense 
maybe literally, never put it past them, mm-hmm. but you better make sure that he has no chance to actually run. You better make sure that these indictments stick and that he's found guilty and that he's ineligible and that he's put in handcuffs and he's all those things. Because if he's able to run and you don't hammer him and nail him down on these, he is going to look like a martyr. You are going to look like clowns, which they already do. And he is going to fundraise off of this and he is going to come back and win the election. And when he wins the election and I'm no Trump fan, I'm not saying I'm not like this isn't some Trump fantasy. I, I, but I could envision a scenario in which this goes horribly wrong for the Democrat. They're very incompetent. Let's not forget they're evil and there, there's no line they won't cross. And, 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 but, but, but at their core, they're bumbling morons. So they will find a way to mess it up. If they do, he doesn't have to worry about reelection and he knows what he's gone through. He knows who he can and can't trust. I could envision a scenario in which he comes back for four years of scorched earth and that would be wild. So I don't know if I'm hoping for that. If I'm not hoping for that, I don't like the chaos, but you know what we've been experiencing here outright. again, and I feel like I have to do the disclaimer. I'm not on the red team and I'm not on the blue team. I'm not a Trump fan. I'm not anti Trump. I don't have much energy one way or the other towards him. I'm observing him and, and he's a bull in a China shop and they don't like that part because he's unpredictable and he may talk about the things that he's not supposed to talk about. So they definitely don't like that. If he gets elected though, I think that he, I think, you know, the lock her up, lock her up with Hillary. And he didn't. I think the next time around, I think he'll lock them all up. And I don't, and and I'll be, to be honest with you, frankly, I wouldn't blame him because (laughs) in, in his particular case, this would be a matter of life or death. You'd be like, if I don't get them, they are going to kill me. (laughs) You know, so, so this is, we're going down, like it's, it's, it's like politics and it's, you know, it's kind of important, but what we're seeing that is, whether you care one way or the other about Trump, what you're seeing is weaponizing the justice department. There's, that's a term that's been used. That is real. That is really happening. You're seeing the justice department being, uh, instructed to go after, uh, the Americans that, that like a certain political party. And that's undeniable. It's really, it's, it's crazy to watch. And so my fear is that if they don't get a handle of the, on this, if, you know, with, with the Trump situation, that this is going to get normalized and we're going to become just sort of used to it, that the justice department always targets Republicans. Everybody knows that, you know, if you get to that point, it's a, it's going to be a real, it's going to be authoritarian. So there's a lot going on there's still so much that could happen between now and then we've got over a year the craziness doesn't even get ramped up until six months before the election so so get your popcorn sean it's gonna be like the shenanigans of ancient rome next question is from a nexus what does charlie think about brick's alleged agenda so this is an interesting one good question um and I just talked to Matt Arrett about this. He's a Canadian guy. We talk, uh, he and I talk about Malthusian policies and depopulation and stuff like that, that comes out of the round table and the Rockefellers. And, and, and what we're seeing is that there, there's this um, secondary front that's opening up a multipolar world 
That's what they call it, where it used to just be that like the American first, it was like the Soviet Union versus the American Empire. And those were the two. And now the Soviet Union goes away and it's just kind of this American Empire, one world government push. And now you've got a secondary group that's rising up and that's BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now, what's interesting about BRICS is they've all they've always been in this group. It's not it's nothing new. They've got 40 percent of the world's population. They've got 25 percent of the world's GDP just in these five countries. So they're a big player. What they've done recently that got a lot of attention was that they went to a gold backed currency. Now, it's not a it's not a currency that the people would use inside those five nations. It's a currency that the nations themselves would use to settle internal trading. So it's not as if you're going to necessarily be able to get these gold-backed bricks dollars in your wallet. Not not right away. It, maybe at some point that that could be a possibility, but this, that's not what this is. But what where they're where they're gaining steam is that they've got this this new currency that is backed by a by gold in in a in a, in a very unusual way, but it's a um, commodity-backed currency, which which is better than fiat currency backed by the United States military, which is what the dollar is. So it's a threat to the dollar hegemony. It's a threat to the, to the petrodollar. It's a threat to the world's reserve currency status for the dollar. And when you've got those things, you've got a very valuable currency, a currency that is, is in demand around the world, forced to be in demand because you have to convert to dollars in order to buy oil. The day that that stops being the case is the day the dollar becomes less valuable. How much less valuable? That remains to be seen. But you you can see a couple things happening. First, you don't have to have dollars to buy oil. Second, any country that has ever experienced the 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 pointed stick part of uh, of dealing with America, they're not going to use the dollar. Why would they if they've got another option? The BRICS countries are currently composed of five, but there are 20 something countries that are in some form of application. I think 13 more are under have applied. And I think there's another 15 that are sitting on the sidelines that say we want to be involved in some way, shape or form, maybe with the banking. Um, So it's a real threat. And then you then you throw into that the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a massive infrastructure project that China has has put into place uh, in two areas, one uh, terrestrial across the land in the form of rail and one maritime through the waters along Southeast Asia and uh, South Asia and, and then up the Mediterranean, you know, into the, up the Red Sea and into the Mediterranean. So they're, they're taking over an entire region. And I think America's feeling very uncomfortable about that. They should. Um, and they see that as a threat. So so some of the stuff that I hear about China, Taiwan, oh, you know, I wonder how much it is about Taiwan and how much it is about BRICS and how much it is about BRI and how much it is about throwing a monkey wrench in their plans to uh, to create this uh, multipolar world. Because if you're America, you would see that as a threat. And when you see threats uh, out there, you can either wait for them to become bigger threats or you can take them out early. Now, China's already big. You can't just mm-hmm. take them out. So America and its woke military better be 
hundred percent certain they want to jump into any sort of uh, confrontation with China or that group, because if they do, um, they might find out the hard way that China's uh, ready. Right. Next question is, does Charlie have any views on the UFO disclosure or is this another smoke and mirrors operation? Uh, yes to both. Yes, I have thoughts on it and views on it. And yes, it's smoke and mirrors. When discl- look, UFO disclosure coming from guys, whether it's to the stars, to the stars Academy had 100 years of CIA experience sitting on its board of directors, including a guy named Jim Semivan, who was, he's not just CIA. He's in like the, the internal ring of like the, the, the board of directors of CIA. I forget the name exactly, but it's the, the highest echelon. So that guy who has spent a quarter of a century at the CIA at the highest level, that guy's going to give me disclosure. That guy all of a sudden has decided that he's an experiencer. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. nobody buying that there's a reason why they're talking about this the government's always lying they lie about everything no matter what they're they want you this is a setup for something that's coming much later now we i i believe that there listen there's been ex, people have had encounters and people have seen things forever this is nothing new but the government, the the, Amer- the American military has a dilemma here because, you know, we give you guys a trillion dollars a year for your, your budget. You better be able to protect us. You couldn't protect us from 19 Arab hijackers with box cutters. You're going to protect us against aliens. Give me a break. So <laughs> they're going to have a problem here, which is that they're by definition, they're going to have to admit that they can't defend this. And if they can't defend this, why are we giving you money? You're supposed to be the, you're supposed, uh, the irony of course, is that the American American military defense is always on the offense. There's no defending going on. It's just constant offense. But, but even if they were there to defend us, what are you going to do? What are you going to defend against this? How are you going to do this? If it's, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, if it's, advanced craft if it's interdimensional good luck but i'll tell you what if it's coming from a congressional hearing it's nonsense okay that that we just need to know we you can believe in in ufos and all that stuff for sure but just don't expect disclosure to happen on on your nightly news you know from the mainstream media and capitol hill and all the i mean it's like the worst groups of people and the groups that have no credibility at all and they're going to tell you about the most important discovery in the history of humanity sorry i'm just not interested from them we've got a question from amy but i'm going to dilute it a bit because of the community guidelines Mm. does charlie think that americans should have a referendum on funding wars yeah well yeah i mean you know what's what's a shame is that the 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 rest of the world i think assumes that the american people are enthusiastic about these wars and they're not this is our government doing this this isn't us we, i want nothing to do with this i have no interest in wars and i think there's well i know that there's a lot of people like me here it now if if somebody was attacking us let's say 
we're a very armed nation. We would defend ourselves and would want to fight back. So there's that there, that, that mentality of like, you come at us, it's on, you know, but nobody comes at us. Nobody look, we're geographically, we've got oceans, we've got Canada to the North and you can't really get through there. And you've got, we've got Mexico to the South. That's an important barrier, right? We should definitely make sure that, that our Southern flank is, is taken care. It's wide open. You can walk across there with your entire family. Nobody cares. So war, what is, I mean, the American people don't want war. The American government does. And the American military industrial complex most definitely does. And they run this. This is what, when Peter Dale Scott describes this group as the deep state, there's another terminology for it called the permanent state. This is the this is the group that doesn't leave after an election cycle. This is the people that, that that work at McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed Martin and 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 build the airplanes and build the bombs and work at Raytheon and have people that you know the Joint Chiefs of Staff come off of their their they retire and then what do they do? They don't go play golf. They go they go to work for Raytheon and then play golf with clients four days a week and get paid seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do that because they're ex generals and they can talk to talk and they can sell the wars. So wars are huge businesses. So we could have a referendum on war, but the point is that the American government doesn't care what we think anyway. They've shown that they don't declare war. The last war we declared was decades ago. These are military built, whatever it is, whatever sort of terminology they can use some legal definition to not call it a war. You know, I mean, they'll say that on the media, but in, in all the, all the documentation, it will be an incursion to be a, the, we're sending advisors. We're sent, you know what I mean? And so they'll find their way around it. But the people, People don't want this. We just, there's no appetite in America. And, and even in our best days, there's no appetite. But given where we are now, high inflation, Southern border wide open, people don't have jobs. Uh, we've got our, we've got infrastructure that's crumbling. We've got big, big problems. All this money, the money that gets sent overseas for wars like Ukraine, you know, they announced $12 billion going to Ukraine at the same day that they announced $700 for each resident and that's affected by the fires in, in Hawaii. And you go, that's all you need to see. They don't care about you. They care about war. Maui's not profitable to them. Ukraine is. Wow. Next question is from Jake. In that regard, why is it any better to be in a democracy rather than a monarchy? I, I mean, we're not in a democracy in America. We're in a constitutional republic, but even that doesn't matter. We're not even we're not even following that. The uh, yeah, d listen. There's big problems with democracy. I mean, it, I speak at anarchist conventions for God's sake. I I don't like any form of of this government. You can you can manipulate it however you want. And you've got the monarchy. Yeah, for sure. You hope you get somebody good in there. Kind of like how we hope we get somebody good in as the president. But the president isn't in charge. We know that. I mean, I think even the casual American understands that the president. Well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of them are pretty dumb. They think the president is a magician that can wave his magic wand and magically their student loan debt disappears. But but theoretically speaking, 
the the president doesn't have any doesn't have the power that we think that he has. So um, you better hope that the structure of government is such that there's a check and balance on power. We used to have that, or at least we had the illusion of that. But I think that things like Citizens United, which gave um, corporations the right to contribute as much as they wanted to political candidates, um, that is uh, that's something that opens the floodgates and and makes it so that as a as a as a pup public general public human beings people living here we're capped at how much we could donate to our political favorite political candidate right and then you look at blackrock and they can give as much as they want because of citizens united and you go why bother why would i even bother participating in this question from mr b what do you think the wagner group reaction is going to be Ooh, boy um That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know. I have don't know off, how they cut off the head of the snake. You better hope so. Right. <laughs> because if you don't, you've got a bunch of angry guys that are out there armed looking for you. I don't know. I, I can't, I, I, I can't uh, predict where this is going to go. It seems, I'm with you, Sean, though. It seems a little late. Like, I would have thought this would have happened a month ago. But I guess they had to find look the right at, time. Look at what happened to the revolts in Rome. Some had a little run, but they eventually got throttled. Yeah. That's it, Charlie. We've answered all the questions then. Do you want to just let the viewers again know where they can find you and support sure. you? Yep, you can go to uh, on Twitter. You can follow me on at macroaggressions on Instagram at macroaggression underscore podcast. You can go to the website theoctopusofglobalcontrol.com, and you can find macroaggressions as an audio podcast wherever podcasts are available. Please subscribe to it; it's free. And uh, if you like it, rate the show and do all the things. We we're fighting an algorithm war, so I'm not, this is not an ego trip; it's an algo trip. You know, so if you can, if you like the show, give it a, a high star. If you like this episode with Sean, obviously, yeah, give it like the thumbs up and share it and do all those things. And, and let's beat these guys at their own game, shall we? Huge thank you for coming on. As always, Charlie, I hope you win the book prize next year. You deserve it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> until next time we speak, brother, salute. Thank you. Next time I see you, you'll be a dad. Indeed. <laughs> Have a great time, Cheers. man. It's going to be, you want to talk about a trip? Get ready for it. I'm excited. Thank you, Charlie. Cheers. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, thanks. Yep, please support Charlie's work. He's been with the channel for years. He was at the tip of the spear with the Who Killed E case. And he's been on, must have been on about 20 times now, one of our most reoccurring guests. Um, I know people throughout the night have been asking me what's going on with baby Ziggy. So, baby Ziggy was in hospital last week um, in Jen's tummy um, because she had some blood and then his heartbeat went really low and they pressed the button, the blue button as they do and the crash team came in and there was going to be some surgery but his heartbeat went back up. So since then, it's been classified as a high-risk birth so Jen's been in and out of the hospitals most days. She was in again today. 
she had a what's called a um, sweep she had a second sweep today and if the sweeps don't work because it's classified as a high-risk pregnancy she's going to go in hospital on monday and not leave until he comes out which means she has to go through the procedures of inducement now when you're induced it could take three days before the waters break up to three days so she's going to be in hospital for days and then you get transferred over to the delivery suite and you can be in the delivery suite for hours or days as well so jen's hoping that ziggy's just going to come naturally before saturday if not we're in for a long next week and she's asked me to thank a lot more people who've sent in gifts from the amazon ziggy wish list we've got a gift from cheryl she said hi jen and sean of all my love from Cheryl, thank you for that. We've got um, Angela, a sent a gift, huge thank you. We've got Linda, sent a gift, Cheryl. Uh, Miss L. Porter, uh, we've got some more, because they come with these little notes from Amazon. Claire, Neil, Sienna, and Cobe. Um, David Macmillan, podcast guest, cheers. Sharon. And John, Cheryl, Jenny, Holly, Diane, Fiona, Miss. I think I've said Cheryl about three times. Cheryl's been very generous, apparently. All right. There we have it. We've got more John Wedger tomorrow. And then we've got a Royal Mess on Saturday. And we've got a podcast going out on Sunday. So, hope to see some of you in the chat for John Wedger tomorrow. Much love and respect wherever you are in the world. Take care out there. Cheerio. <laughs>